Good evening. It's a six o'clock session of a special meeting for the Petaluma City Council. Uh, would the uh, clerk please call roll? Harris? Here. Kearney? Here. Barrett? Here. Glass? Albertson? Here. Healy? Here. Miller? And with that, will Ms. Hines please lead us in the uh, Pledge of Allegiance? Thank you. Is there anyone here who wants to speak to general public comment? We have a lot of speaker slips for items that are on the agenda. General public comment is for items not on the agenda that is, you'd like to come and address council about. Uh, is there anyone here? I have no slips for general public comment. We'll open public comment, general public comment, and close and move on with our agenda. Item one is a workshop and we have eight items on the agenda. We're going to go straight down this list one through eight and we'll discuss starting with one and move down at the completion of each item. Uh, the, the people need to understand the council's not going to take any action this evening. We're taking input from the public and from staff and we'll give staff some direction and that'll probably be pretty much the extent of it and then when this comes back and I expect that it might uh, any of these items uh, come back before council and then it'll be for discussion and action uh, listed on the agenda so with that I have several speaker cards uh, mostly dealing with short-term rentals but what I'd like to do is have staff make their presentation I'm getting I'm getting coached here <laughs> I'd like staff to make their presentation and then we're going to open it to the council to ask some questions and then we're going to open it to the public Ms. Hines good evening when just Mayor for clarification Robinson. we're just doing item one correct okay, that's I was you. going to re reiterate that that thank you I think that um, the format for this evening's workshop is to go through them individually, each of the eight items. So I'm going to kick it off with a, a brief overview of the short-term rental item that was outlined in your report. Uh, the council will recall that in 2012 uh, they passed code amendments to allow bed and breakfast inns in residential zoning districts. Um, and that was that was couched under economic development amendments because we were getting a lot of inquiries about some of the large historic homes in Petaluma that really weren't able to be used um, by single-family homes but wanted to maintain their character, um, their look. So um, adding bed and breakfast as a conditional use permit in residential zones. So we have had one of those applications those conditional use permits since that time. Um, but since that time there's been a proliferation of short-term rentals that are a slightly different mold and they're um, found a lot 
on Airbnb and similar type websites. They are often a homeowner renting a room, maybe two, um, and it's done mostly through the internet. It's somebody comes for a night or two nights. Uh, the person is still living in the home, um, so it's primarily still operating as a single family home, but with um, transient transient occupancy coming and going to rent one or two rooms. We also have rentals of entire homes as also the other type of short-term rentals that have come up. And what staff has find, found is it's difficult to classify these type of uses under the existing definitions that are in the zoning code. So we have a definition for bed and breakfast, but a lot of these don't really seem to fall under what you would typically think of as a bed and breakfast. Um, we have hotel and motel, obviously these um, vacation rentals don't fall under that. We have some definitions about boarding houses that seems to be a little bit of a um, outdated use type um, that's called for in the zoning code and we also have rooming or boarding accessory which staff has always that's not included in the use table but staff has always interpreted that as allowing somebody to have roommates or having um, additional people live in the house in a roommate situation and that those are more of a um, 30 days or more a more long-term situation um, one of the other things that's coming up is that the city is not benefiting from the revenues of the transit occupancy tax because that's triggered through um, issuance of a business license. Well, if someone came in for a business license to rent out a room or two on Airbnb, in the planning office we would tell them that we couldn't approve their business license because we don't really have a way to classify them unless they came back in with a CUP as a bed and breakfast. Um, so we're not getting that benefits. We've also received a number of complaints about some of the neighborhood impacts from these type of uses in, in residential neighborhoods. Things like parking and traffic, traffic, unfamiliar visitors to the neighborhood, noises late at night, people coming and going, doors slamming, um, luggage being pulled down the sidewalk. Um, so what staff is recommending are some amendments to the ISO to clean up those definitions, add definitions, modify definitions, to try to be consistent with TOT regulations, ensure that the different types of short-term rentals are clearly defined so that we can also capture them for TOT revenues. And what we're looking for from the council is some feedback on what level of regulation they would like to see for these type of uses. Um, we haven't done a lot of research on other jurisdictions, but if you go out there and look at other jurisdictions, there is a number of different models. There's straight out prohibitions, there's kind of the, uh, you know, ignore it or it classifies as primarily as a residential use and so it's not taking on a, its own use type. Um, and then there's also um, some different models of establishing criterias or permitting processes that people can follow. So that's kind of the input we're looking for from the council is what level of regulation you'd like us to look into or pursue and we could return with some options. So I'm happy to answer questions if there are any. Questions? Ms. Barrett. Um, Heather, thank you. Uh, can you tell us why um, an Airbnb would be any different from a regular B&B &B in terms of uh, needing a CUP or having to have a business license? 
Um, a lot of the Airbnbs we're looking at are a single room in, in a house. So it seems like on a day-to-day -day basis it's still operating more as a single family home with an occasional short-term stay. Whereas a B&B is typically um, something that is taking on more of a hybrid approach. You might have them, you have to have the manager that lives there, but it's taking on a more commercial use as the primary use. So it's that line where, um, where it goes from primarily residential with a small commercial component to uh, more commercial with an accessory residential component. But if a and b were not very successful and they were only having one or two people a month, um, you would still require a, a CUP for that and a business license. Correct. Um, and so I, I'm really not sure why, it, that, art, that seems like an artificial distinction because really, um, what's the difference in how it functions? Um, and if an Airbnb were to have somebody every night of the week or, um, you know, 10 days out of 30. And, and we could classify it as that. And if that's, if that's the direction of the council, we can, we can have that be the interpretation and require it. One thing to bring up is that um, the criteria outlined in the B&B specifically required that houses have um, some sort of uh, architectural significance or um, uh, they were houses that were important to preserve. So that's going to eliminate the ability for an Airbnb type use to be run out of a, a large percentage of standard single family homes. Okay, thank you. I, I was curious of just following up there. Uh, did we require the the B and Bs to be sprinklered? Was that a condition of becoming a B and B with a CUP in the in the city? Yes, there's. We talked Fire about sprinklered. this extensively. Yes, I remember. Yeah, there was. We had talked about it in terms of the number of rooms, I believe, but the one that has come through did have sprinklers. Thank you, Mr. Healy. Um, thank you. Um, Ms. Lance, can you remind us, uh, spend a little bit, bit of time, what are some of the factors that are looked at other than sprinklers in, in if someone wants to a permit for a CUP for a, a bed and breakfast? So one, it's um, finding that it's architect, uh, has some architectural significance, have to have on-site parking, um, and there's a parking standard um, in the zoning code for, I'd have to look it up, but I think it might be one per room. Um, there was limitations on um, events. There was limitations on changes, making changes to the house to take on that more commercial use. Okay, thank you, that's helpful. Mr. Harris. Thank you. Um, we've had discussions up here about the TOT taxes for, for different reasons, and we know any change would be a vote of the people. Um, but do we have the ability, do you know off the top of your head, to charge a different rate for this type of use for TOT? Or would that be a vote of the people? Or um, do we even have that flexibility? It's everything, one fee, and if it wants to be changed, it would be a vote of the people? Or can we delineate between uses, potentially? Uh, I think we'd have to do a little analysis to, to answer that well. Um, my, my general sense would be that that um, sometimes it's possible to, uh, without going to a vote, 
wholly or partly suspended tax on a class of, of activity that would otherwise create the tax. Um, but otherwise, I think it would be a matter of, of whether the, um, the regulation treats the use such that it triggers the tax without, without amending the tax itself. So I, I, I would assume this, the, if the council wants to link up um, this use with TOT, it'll be a matter of conforming the treatment of the use to the ordinance, assuming the council doesn't want to go to the voters. But we could certainly look at more closely what those options might be. Thanks. Mr. Kearney? I have a question about enforcement. So if, if we were to come up with a regulation on, on limiting this, how would we go about enforcing it? Um, outside of just, I mean, would it just be us waiting for someone to call and complain, or would it us be proactively going on the different like VRBO or Airbnb sites to find these folks? Well, I mean, we're obviously limited in staff resources for enforcement, um, so much of our enforcement is done on a complaint basis. If, if I may, on a, a follow up on that item, I sense there's going to be some, uh, I guess, research that's going to be directed back. But on that, on that same topic, um, I was reading on like the Airbnbs that it seems like they they put the owners on the host of in the individual city. They almost are hands off, like whatever the the local regulations are, make sure you comply to them. Meaning they're hands off. They as the entity Airbnb. Um, which is interesting because I've been reading they're about to go public potentially after probably Twitter. So they're here to stay is what really what it is. It's interesting that they're doing that uh, to the host. So it's going to be up to the individual host that probably aren't sophisticated with the individual rules of each individual municipality. And it gets back to what you're saying about enforcement and staff. So it'll be interesting when we do that analysis, when we leave here, what comes back and how we do this enforcement. Right, and it, I mean, I, I tried to contact Airbnb to talk to somebody about just how different jurisdictions are treating this and what they've run into. I couldn't, I couldn't get a real Probably live didn't even person. Get a phone number. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're right. I did read that that they really put the onus on the host. I mean, so depending on uh, what what way this went, I mean, we could do an initial enforcement effort, but obviously we are limited with staff resources thank you mr healy yeah, yeah thank you to follow up on that um you know irrespective of what where airbnb is trying to put the the responsibility i mean would we have the ability mr city attorney to um attempt to make airbnb and similar companies responsible um for for payment of uh, tot taxes some I don't, you don't need to answer that now but you know, just because they have a disclaimer on their website doesn't necessarily mean that's the end of the discussion. To follow up on that before you answer, uh, the, I would agree, and especially since they are the payment portal, because I, I, I've used it numerous times, uh, and uh, you pay them right away, and then they, you know, credit the account of whoever's, uh, you know, renting you the house. And so, since they are doing that, they're selling a product in this state and they're not charging applicable applicable taxes wouldn't they get in trouble from the state equalization board or, or someone for not assessing the proper taxes on something like that well we um if you look at the tot ordinance what it does is treats the um the receiver of payment um for for a transient occupancy subject to the tax 
as the tax collector um, from the person who pays the tax, which is the transient occupant. So we, we'd have to look at, at the way in which that, that business and those transactions are structured, but it sounds like, um, you know, it sounds like there's certainly, you know, jurisdiction from a legal standpoint in terms of reaching into the city and conducting business there, and it sounds like it also may just be squarely under under the TOT ordinance in terms of how the money flows, but that's another thing we'd have to look at depending on what the council direction is about how the, the desired treatment of that is. It looks like um, that the, the payment is at the responsibility of the operator who is the proprietor of the hotel. It looks like that's the way the TOT tax does it, but obviously we could look at that more closely. Then I have another question too. Um, would we want to make it different for folks that are renting out the entirety of their house, other than just uh, one? You know, looking at folks that are having uh, just a room in their house. Potentially, I mean, that's that's kind of another. There's whole different impacts with that because oftentimes with those type of vacation rentals, you don't ever have a, a permanent resident. You know, you have a house that is rented out for a week at a time, but it's different, I think, than a single room Airbnb because then you still have the primary resident living there. And I'm sure uh, when we, uh, I think there's one or two people that want to talk to this item. Uh, and so I'd be curious to hear, I know in Sonoma Valley, they were having problems with folks that were renting out their homes uh, as far as uh, large parties or events going on and there was really no uh, zoning codes to enforce uh, at the county level and I, I don't know if it was the county or city so they spent a lot of time looking at this too so I'd be curious to hear if the folks that are here to talk about this issue if they've encountered that or is it just that it's a nuisance because it's extra folks and extra parking and you know tra traffic in and out of houses uh, as opposed to uh, you know people renting out a whole house and having a party or whatever any other questions of staff by council before we open this to the public a reminder we've had several people walk in since our opening comments uh, the workshop has eight topics tonight this is the first uh, dealing with short-term rentals um, if you wish to speak to any one of the eight items and we'll go straight down the list I ask that you fill out a speaker slip in the back of the room and give it to the clerk and with that, we have uh, called names. Please be forgiving in my pronunciation. And we'll call a name and a backup speaker. There's a chair here. If you could come to this chair and sit in the speaker's chair, be, we can move this right along. Our first speaker, speaker will be Thomas Holsbohr. I hope, sir, if you'd come to the podium, please. Followed by... And I'm Maurice Bowers. No, sir, if you, you're the first speaker. Go ahead, sir. No, right, right to the podium. Right. Can I go ahead? Uh, Our well, way. You get three minutes, sir. Thank you. Um, I, my name is Thomas Holsbohr. I'm from the Netherlands. Uh, thank you for hearing me. I know I'm not a local, and uh, please bear with me with my pronunciation. Um, I am an Airbnb uh, guest in Petaluma. This is my second stay, and um, I must say it has been wonderful. Um, 
I came here um, because I spoke to people through Airbnb. Uh, it wasn't so much a booking, it was more a conversation and getting to know each other. And uh, last time I was here, I, I, I said to them, this has been an eye-opener and also a... Um, uh, it, it's good to come in contact with other people. It's good to talk, it's good to... Um, to learn about each other and um, I would just uh, like to um, give give you guys that it's not a hotel service in that sense these are people that think a lot about who they let into their home because it is their private home and um, I think we can learn from each other I am not o it's not only that I bring in money uh, I think I bring in money for the entire city because most of the money I spend is in shops here locally. And if nuisance is a problem, which I can fully understand, this is an international issue. We have it as well in my uh, hometown. We're speaking, we're having the same conversation. Um, if nuisance is a problem, that should be dealt with in the normal manner in which um, residential nuisance is already dealt with. So I don't really see that much of a difference um, unless there is of course uh, like a service that people make and um, and and only have uh, guests without being there themselves but this is not I'm not renting a room I'm staying with friends is how it feels to me um, orange light does that mean I have to go <laughs> okay um, so I would like uh, I f and I fully understand that people are uh, maybe uh, I would I would just like to say that um, this is not a local problem so there is going to be a time that this is going to be dealt with in a more um, national sense perhaps or international sense and uh, the, as, as uh, your colleague said the money goes through Airbnb so I it's going to be tough to to get things um, monitored locally I can imagine, and you're not the only one that has these issues. So um, use use the entirety of the country and don't try to fix this problem by yourself. Thank you uh, for listening. Mr. Harris. May I ask the speaker yes. uh, a question? So th thank you very much. Uh, I just have a follow-up question. It's not a pop quiz, but thank you for coming and, and your user. So it makes me th user of the service. So yeah. it makes me think of some questions. Mm -hmm. um, how did you um, pay for it? Because the way I read everything online on Airbnb is they encouraged the, the uh, host not to, uh, they encouraged them to unbundle the pricing, not have one bundle saying this is how much the room r was. They want, they encouraged the, them to say this is how much is this is the tax in any applicable local tax which would be our TOT tax and they would break it all out was it broken out for you or was it just one payment of one amount I if you remember I, I don't no I'm deal. not sure I, I would recall um, no, no I don't know it was a pop quiz just curiosity <laughs> and what sure. we're trying to accomplish on yeah, our sure. TOT taxes thank you very much thank you sir thank you Maurice Bowers, uh, followed by uh, Stephen Tamborski. Close. Mr. Bowers. Hi. I'm Maurice Bowers. I'm a resident here in Petaluma, and we are hosts with Airbnb. Thomas happened to have come in yesterday from Holland, 
and is staying with his hand. I don't have anything. Sir, could you prepared. speak right into the microphone? Oh, my apologies. You can lift it out of there if it would be helpful for you, sir. Okay. A little higher. At any rate, uh, one of the questions, I we were not really prepared. We were in Bodega, did not have any reception, and we only found out about this meeting on the way into Petaluma as we hit uh, town. Um, at any rate, to make a long story short, uh, it is a large issue. It's not just a local issue here in Petaluma. Um, I think back while we were waiting, I was thinking about eBay collection of sales taxes within the state. Uh, they have never untangled that issue, as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, local communities would love to collect the sales tax from those transactions, um, you know, and the state would like to collect sales tax also with uh, Amazon.com, et cetera. You know, those issues are still being figured out, if you will. And the face of this whole issue has changed dramatically. I mean, the, the social networking on the internet is a, you know, it's just changed the face of doing business altogether. Uh, we, as hosts, we do, you know, it was a way for us to find. Um, you know, we look at it as almost as a social thing. We enjoy having people come. We do communicate with them. We do not book directly, if you will. We have uh, people send inquiries to us, tell us what it is they're doing, and if they don't, I ask. Uh, you know, it's a husband and wife coming to attend a wedding or something along those lines, and, um, you know, I, I just want to give you guys some idea of what it is that's happening. And, you know, we just, you know, my daughter uh, told us about it. We had never even considered it. Uh, we have a family home that we've been living in. We built 22 years ago. And, um, you know, we bring people to town who spend money in town. And, yes, the TOT tax is an issue, and I understand that. But the one question I have is, how long is this debate and deliberation going to continue before whatever regulations are done? I, you know, it's the first thing we've heard of it, truthfully, is this afternoon. And uh, obviously, it's going to need more input. And do you guys even have an idea of how long you expect the process to take? Is it open-ended? As I mentioned earlier, sir, there will be no decisions made on this. No, I understand. We're, Not we're, tonight. We're I taking understand. input from the public. We're yeah. going to give some direction to staff, and at some future date, staff uh, uh, through the city manager's office will get this on the agenda, and uh, it will be discussed further. Okay. That was it. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Uh, Stephen Tamborski. I hope I pronounced That's that close. correctly. Followed by Stephen Tamborski. Garber. Thanks for uh, hearing us here. Um, I, I'm a host, and actually, I, I'm, I'm a guest. I've been a guest on Airbnb for uh, a couple of years. Travel, my wife and I travel. We use it. We we love it. Um, you know, we, we stay uh, in, in neighborhoods, get the feel of uh, a place, feel like a local. You know, the uh, the uh, name Airbnb is a little confusing because uh, it, uh, the um, rooms can run the gamut from a, a, a room in a house to a bed and breakfast where breakfast is served or food is served to um, a house. I have um, a, uh, a legal granny unit behind my house, small, um, 
and that's that's what I rent out. And I, I rent to um, people from all over the world coming to Petaluma. They, Petaluma is becoming a destination for, uh, you know, in and of itself, food, beer, um, and uh, there is this social networking aspect to it. Um, you know, w when I get an inquiry, I uh, I start a conversation with the people, and uh, um, it's not a, a, a blind booking kind of situation. You know, I've uh, uh, developed friends uh, using the service, uh, both as a host and as a guest. So um, uh, when, uh, when, when, I, when I started this uh, um, in January, um, I came down to uh, City Hall to see what I needed to do to uh, do this properly and uh, was told basically that there were no uh, regulations regarding it so um, I just proceeded um, and it's been uh, it's been great we we rent maybe 10 to uh, 12 days a month and uh, people spend uh, money locally um, we're located within walking distance, so a lot of the, a lot of our people uh, walk downtown and shop, dine, um, and uh, I think um, I, I, I've I've told my neighbors what I'm doing, but I, they'd probably be hard pressed if they didn't know that that we had a, a, a some kind of a situation like that. So um, once again, I just wanted to let you know that th th there's a a, a wide gamut of uh, uh, rooms and, and uh, facilities through Airbnb, and it's a it's a great service as far as I'm concerned. Thank you, sir. Deborah Garber, be followed by Naomi Richmond. Naomi Richmond. Hello. Go ahead, ma'am. My name is Deborah Garber. And I'm actually wearing a couple of hats. Um, for many years, I worked for the Petaluma Visitors Center, where um, I worked to promote tourism to Petaluma, um, to help visitors have a great time here, spend some money, come back another time. And I'm also an Airbnb host. Um, I just want to say I've had nothing but great experiences with Airbnb guests, and I find that they keep a very low profile. These are regular people who, um, they're like anybody else. They don't make any more noise getting in and out of their cars than anybody else using the street. Um, if anything, they're exceptionally thoughtful because they're aware that they're in somebody's private home and they're guests in a neighborhood. Um, I've had a range of guests, anything from honeymooners to um, wine country tourists to uh, students at the Strozzi Institute and right now I have guests who are at the Coast Guard so that just gives you a little idea of the range um, I haven't had a single complaint from any neighbor in fact I've had neighbors refer their out-of-town friends and family to us for lodging um, if you look at the reviews on some of the uh, some of the listings on Airbnb, you can see that these people are 
ambassadors for Petaluma. They have a wonderful time here. They appreciate the um, very one-on-one -on -one kind of hospitality they get and all the information about restaurants, things to do, and so on, and they write it up in their review. And then they send more people to Petaluma. Um, one thing I want to mention is that in my own sort of informal research, I've asked our guests if you couldn't stay at an Airbnb in Petaluma, where would you stay? Would you stay at another hotel in town? And uh, for the most part they say, no, we'd go to some neighboring town that has Airbnb. So I feel that it would be a real shame for Petaluma to lose this business. These people spend a lot of money in Petaluma. Um, they help make our town the tourist destination that it's supposed to be as outlined in the economic development plan that was done a couple of years ago. So I feel that we should be welcoming these people with open arms, whether they're staying in a hotel or a campground or an Airbnb. These are people that um, have a beneficial effect on our city and I guess that's it. Thank you. Thank you, you ma'am. Naomi Richmond, be followed by Susan Thompson. Hello. Um, I'm also an Airbnb host. Um, I've lived in Petaluma since 1974 and have owned my house since 1979. I am a huge supporter of Petaluma. I have had a business here since 74. Petaluma is a vibrant community and we are increasingly dependent on tourism. And tourism is increasingly non-traditional and my guests come from all over the world and often they say they have only heard of Petaluma through Airbnb and they love it and they send their friends and I, at least twice a month I hear from somebody who has stayed at my house saying oh I love your granola recipe and I've made it or here's a picture of my baby that was conceived at your house they come for all different reasons and they love it they love Petaluma, they're respectful, they respect the neighborhoods. I have told them to park only in front of my house, to be aware of the neighbors. There have been complaints about my house. However, there were complaints long before I did Airbnb and neighborhood conflicts between neighbors should be resolved by mediation and not by complaints to the city council. It's important that we preserve the nature of our town and Airbnb I think can do that. We are inviting people who are like the first speaker, ordinary people from other countries. They come to see a real American community and they come for all sorts of reasons. Um, this is important economically for the city. It's also important for people like me. I'm turning 65. I don't want to work until I'm 80 if I can help it. I want to stay in my house. My daughter's fifth generation Petaluman. I've been here forever it feels like. I don't want to be priced out of my home. And Petaluma is increasingly expensive, as most of us are aware. Also, as we age, we may not be able to work the same way we have. Renting out my daughter's room makes a big difference. I don't want to have to stop renting out my daughter's room. Also, I see the orange light. Also, um, to conform to the um, use permit, I'm in an historic district. It would be difficult to set up all sorts of parking because you can't, the, the historic districts, you can't change the historic nature. So to set up a lot of parking in front of my house would not be something that I could do. 
So that was all. Thank you so much for having this hearing. Mr. Harris. If I may, ma'am, um, you were mentioning the complaints. Did you receive the complaints by chance through code enforcement, or is there an area on Airbnb? No, complaint? through code enforcement. Code enforcement, okay. And I inquired, inquired of some of my neighbors, and they told me their problems, and I have really tried to address them. So there's a review section for hosts to guests, guests to hosts, but not a third party that can do complaints, to your knowledge. Is that correct? I don't know of one. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you. Susan Thompson to be followed by Bob Olicker. Ms. Thompson. When we moved into our home in 1989, I thought we moved into a residential neighborhood. The last time I looked at the city zoning map, which was just a few days ago, I realized that yes, indeed, it's still a residential neighborhood. And I have to say that I don't want to live next door to a nightly rental. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it must be a B&B. &B. These are commercial enterprises that cater specifically to tourists and are not appropriate in my little neighborhood. I agree with many of the points that have been made by the Petaluma neighbors preserving Petaluma neighborhoods, and I just want to state my opposition. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Bob Olicker, followed by Christina Gleason. Uh, good evening, members of the council. My name is Bob Olicker. I'm a local attorney with Badley Olicker and Sartori, and I'm actually working with uh, Ms. Richmond relative to the complaints that she's received on her Airbnb. Um, this whole concept of vacation rentals, I understand you're at the beginning of this process, and I would just urge the city council to charge staff to do a, a really thorough job on their research before you make a decision. I think you need to look at how this concept of vacation rentals in short term connects Petaluma to the world. That's really an important concept, and we shouldn't overlook it. I think you need to look at the shortage of hotel rooms in town and what effect the restrictions of Airbnb or even the elimination of them will have on tourism in town. And that's very important to the business community and I represent a lot of members of this business community who, re who rely on those tourist dollars coming in and keeping businesses strong here. I think you need to look at the benefits to the community just in how it affects tourism and the income that it brings to town. I have never spoken to a single Airbnb or vacation rental owner who has not told me they would gladly pay the TOT tax. I do not believe that is an issue that you need to concern yourself with. You just need to tell them how they can accomplish that task and they will gladly pay it. I do not believe that is going to be a problem. And I think you need to charge the city attorney with researching the constitutional limitations you're going to find on restricting property owners' use. There are limits to what you can and cannot tell people what they can do with their home. So can I, have, can I rent out one of my rooms? Sure. Can I bring in a college student? Yeah. I can bring in a roommate. Where do you draw that line of where that becomes inappropriate? And when you talk about impacts on neighborhood, would, would you rather have, uh, you know, a, let's say a college student renting the house or a tourist renting the house? Does it matter if it's three days or if it's 30 days? And these are all things I would urge you to ask city attorney to look at and analyze these issues before you even begin to consider any modification to the IZO for allowing vacation rentals. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Christina Gleason to be followed by Nancy Sasser. Good evening, council members, ladies and gentlemen. Ma'am, if you Excuse can speak, me, can you speak right into the oh, microphone, please. Thank you. Good evening, council members, ladies and gentlemen. I'm an artist, educator in Petaluma City Schools, and a published author. 
I'm here to state that I oppose nightly rentals in the residential neighborhoods. Referring to IZO Chapter 27 as defined in 2012 by the, by the city, I would urge you not to recommend rooming or boarding accessory otherwise stated to allow subleasing a portion of a residential unit for 30-day or more roommate situation. I understand today's economics place financial, financial stresses upon our purse strings, but this should not allow nightly rentals. More significantly, <coughs> nightly rentals do not belong in residential neighborhoods. The proliferation of nightly rentals will seriously affect cohesive residential neighborhoods. Consider if there were one or two or three on every block. The question of saturation arises. With respect to both B&Bs and nightly rentals, how will this affect property devaluation? Commercial activity must be legally disclosed in real estate contracts. Who shall compensate the lowering of property values due to such commercial activity? The, the resident? The city? I believe that problems will become a drain on city resources. They will cause possible legal struggles. Excuse me. I would also like to address the importance of liability. Please consider Megan's Law for one. There are children's and schools in the residential neighborhoods. In closing, my questions are my concerns. Your workshops in deciding the outcome will truly define the character of Petaluma. Thusly, a city's character defines the long-range vision, which becomes our history, our value as a model to others. Petalumans have shown they have strong family values. We support our schools and enjoy the cohesiveness of neighborhoods, community gatherings, such as the River Festival. We recognize each other on the streets of our town. We are accountable to one another. Such is the definition of a neighborhood where safety and security are valued. I would like you to additionally note that the Petaluma neighbors preserving Petaluma neighborhoods are endorsed by the city of Mammoth and Healdsburg and Tiburon also prohibit nightly rentals. Thank you for hearing my concerns and I appreciate all your effort to assist and represent us here in our sweet city of Petaluma. I'm available at your call. My email is always available to you to answer questions. Thank you so much for hearing my concerns. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Any Nancy questions? Sasser to be followed by Dirk Durham. If I pronounced that correctly. Ms. Sasser. Thank you. I want to discuss with you my concerns for regarding short-term rentals in the residential zones. My primary concern is for neighborhood safety. As you can tell by the hosts, they are basically primarily responsible for vetting the people who are staying with them, um, which is really pretty much unregulated. This provides easy access to neighborhoods for criminals and sexual predators. Um, men, it's, probably unlikely, but it provides the opportunity. Many neighborhoods, such as ours, use neighborhood watch to ensure safety. A lot of people on our block work during the day, other people uh, travel a lot, and we watch each other's homes. 
the constant stream of strange vehicles and strangers in the neighborhood make this really difficult, if not impossible. You feel a little uncomfortable knowing this person is a guest of Petaluma, probably, so you don't really want to ask them what they're doing there or why they're loitering or why they're standing in front of your house kind of looking at it, and so that's a, that's a difficulty. My secondary concern is the effect of this commercial activity on the other's neighbor's properties values and how the influx of strangers changes the nature of the neighborhoods from being very cohesive, cohesive and family-like where you know one another to where the individuals are more isolated and anonymous. Other concerns include accountability for guests' vacation and weekend-like behavior, the liability for guests, um, unfair economic advantage at the expense and the nature of our neighborhoods, the impact on the legal hotels and motels and B&Bs, and also whether the city has the resources to monitor and regulate a program that would allow short-term um, rentals in the residential neighborhoods. I respect, respectfully request that you follow the lead of other communities such as Tiburon, Healdsburg, and Mammoth that have prohibited unregulated nightly short-term rentals in, the, in their neighborhoods. Uh, this could be done by amending the definition of rooming or boarding accessory to add a term of for not less than 30 days um, and continuing to require a conditional use permit and that uh, short -term, any short-term rentals follow the criteria for B&Bs. I really thank you for attending to this matter. It's going to be a difficult one, and I appreciate that you're allowing for public input. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Dirk Durham to be followed by Michael Craves. Kraus. Thank you, sir. I sir. just want to agree with uh, Nancy and Christina. Um, also, I moved in about 10 years ago, a uh, 100-year-old house, put a lot of sweat and blood into it, and uh, I, I think we should control this because all of a sudden, you know, that you have one person doing this, you're going to have a lot more, and it's going to be way out of control, um, especially with the parking. So um, anyways, I just uh, want to let you know I'm very against it, the short-term uh, rentals. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Michael Krause, be followed by Judith Bakela. Sir. Thank you. I'm a long-term resident um, and experienced firsthand the impact from uh, Airbnb short-term rentals. Um, guests of short-term rentals are more likely to exhibit unneighborly vacation-like behavior, late, early, frequent coming and goings, noisy cell phones, conversations, careless parking and littering uh, without regards for others, whether that's intentional or unintentional. I think they're just on vacation. Uh, without regards for others in a neighborhood and having a negative impact on the quality of life for neighbors. Um, what protects neighborhoods from being overrun with nightly rentals if this is allowed? what determines which neighbors are allowed to participate in this profit-making venture and which are not. Allowing nightly rentals in residential neighborhood provides unfair competition for existing legal rental businesses such as licensed B&Bs, hotels and motels. 
allowing short-term rental has a negative impact on my property value, I feel. Uh, if I was now buying my house in Petaluma and had a choice between a home with or without next-door nightly rentals, I would choose to buy a house without that impact. I respectfully request that you follow the example of other communities to disallow short-term rentals in residential neighborhoods or at least restrict short-term rentals to existing provisions of bread and breakfast and require conditional use permit. Thank you for your consideration. Thank you, sir. Judith Pakela to be followed by Steve, Steve Trennan. Ma'am. Ready? Okay. So I moved into Petaluma in 1987 and bought my first home here because I love the town. I like the community. I grew up in a very small town. And so sold that house, moved over to the west side, and I live up in Cambridge Lane. And I am both a host and I also use Airbnb when I go travel. I just got back from Peru in October and I really appreciated that the people who were hosts arranged to have a taxi to pick me up at the airport so that I could stay over on the coast. They arranged to have that taxi driver understanding that my Spanish isn't very good at all and their English wasn't very good. But we had a translator, their son that lived in Chicago, who arranged to have a, per I had a personal driver. Now, if I did all this, with going and checking into the hotels, the hotel was going to be $350 where some of the other doctors were staying. I couldn't afford that, and plus getting the transportation. So when I went to Peru last year on a medical mission, I was told about Airbnb, and so when I moved back to Petaluma, I was gone for a year in Los Angeles, moved back up. Um, I thought, well, this is a great thing. I have this big old house up there. I love entertaining people. I love our town. And so my advertising for it is the gateway to Sonoma and the wine country. People love it. I've had a uh, 84-year-old woman and her granddaughter going to a wedding, and they couldn't find out until last minute if they were able to attend because she was in the hospital on Wednesday. They were flying out on Friday. Um, the other guest that I had was a professional. She was going to Sonoma State to do a teaching, a training. I've had inquiries with um, three 28-year-old guys that want to come going to a wedding, and it's last minute. I screen them. I make sure that these are folks that I feel comfortable with having in my home, and I feel that all the other hosts would feel that way too. Now, so far as the commentaries on um, distinguishing from, well, who is an overnight renter, well, how do you know that's not a family member or a friend, and they're just, you know, pains in the butt. Um, so far as noise level, I don't think anybody would ever complain. I can complain more about my neighbors that live across the street and their kids than anybody complaining about mine. Um, the other thing is, uh, so far as, as I said, screening. So far as housing prices going down, that's very interesting to me because housing prices have been going up. How many people ask about, well, do you have overnight guests? I was looking to move closer into town. I went to look at a house that has two illegal units in it for rental. Um, and so I'm wondering, well, geez, okay, so housing prices, they say they're going, they're going up. What does that mean? Um, Airbnb has been very supportive to me so far as any questions that I have had, which I've never had to approach them because I handle everything myself, doing it in an educated way, making sure being a single female that I'm not going to have strangers in my house that I don't feel comfortable with. I've had different inquiries from different folks, and mostly the folks that that are interested in staying at my place are professionals. So that's where I feel that bringing these folks into town, and I, I give them a little tour of Petaluma, and they always say, I would love to live here. This is a great place. So I'll end with that. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am.
we're coming to the end of our uh, speakers and if there's someone who has not filled out a speaker slip wants to speak to this issue please do so they're in the back of the room and give it to the clerk and with that Steve Trennan to be followed by James Eli uh, you just said my name sort of Steve Trennan I'm fourth generation Petalumen and um, I'm going to echo some of what she said. Um, one of the main issues for me is that I wouldn't be able to travel if it weren't for Airbnbs. A hotel in Baltimore, when I went to see my daughter dance, I couldn't have gone to see her dance because it was seven times what the B&B I stayed in cost. The woman was wonderful to me. She picked me up at the airport. It's a great experience to have both as someone who runs an Airbnb and as someone who visits one. Uh, I live on Social Security and a small pension. So I could not have gone otherwise. Um, she also couldn't have kept her house in this economy without the added income. So there, there are elders who have limited income that this is a real benefit to besides travelers. Um, the, the other point that hasn't been made is that unlike hotels and bed and breakfasts, you can vet uh, people before you rent to them running an Airbnb and vice versa. Just like eBay, you wouldn't buy from a seller who doesn't have a track record with eBay that you can see the reviews from people who have bought from that person. Uh, it's the same. It it's, works both ways. They don't have to rent to you if, if they don't think there's someone you want in your home. Um, so that adds to the safety factor that someone was complaining about. I, I have an Airbnb next to me. I've never been aware of people coming and going unless I happen to be going out to my car. You'd have to be sitting at a window watching or, I mean, car, car doors opening and closing and luggage wheels as something to complain about. I had a lot more problem with leaf blowers power drills, saws, lawnmowers, vacuums every weekend from a neighbor who's there all the time. I, I don't, don't think noise is really an issue. But it is uh, a real issue for those of us of limited income and for those who want a different experience and for those who are underwater with their homes. It makes a big, a big difference. And to Teresa's point about the difference between an Airbnb and a uh, bed and breakfast that isn't getting enough people. One's a failed business, the other is a homeowner that's simply running out of room. I, I don't see the parallel between the two. If the business is failing, then it's not a very good be uh, bed and breakfast. Food's bad or the location's bad or it's a business. Okay, thank you. Thank you, sir. James Eli to be followed by Marie McCuster. Hello, I'm James Eli. I, I'm a homeowner in Petaluma. Um, I own a, a seasonal home and I, I'm not currently an Airbnb user, um, but can imagine what my uh, future uh, might look like when, uh, when I retire and, and I um, might become a user on either end. Uh, I uh, imagine that uh, 
I would want to comply and and so I would urge you to anything that you do to make it uh, uh, easy for users to uh, to comply and I, I got a, a sense from many of the uh, the proponents uh, tonight that uh, um, that if you make it easy that they will step forward and you will uh, uh, get very good compliance and get a lot of more information about the level of activity that's going on in in the town uh, I would uh, further uh, urge uh, the council not to move uh, too quickly as uh, this is not uh, Petaluma's uh, sole problem and uh, um, how, however taking the lead as a as a town could uh, uh, could become costly I'd, I would urge you to uh, um, please follow rather than lead in that regard. Uh, thank you. Thank you, sir. Marie McCuster uh, to be followed by Darren Suford. Good evening, City Council. Um, thank you for allowing me to come up and speak tonight. I'm aware of Airbnb. Um, I run the uh, visitors program here in town and daily we meet people that come in that are using the Airbnb services. We don't promote a Airbnb. We promote um, most of the commercial um, units in town that actually do collect TOT tax. This has been something, you know, the Economic Development Director and myself have been looking at as it is a huge marketing en engine for um, accommodation internationally. And most of the people that we come in contact that are using Airbnb are looking for a whole different type of experience. They're not just looking for the commercial hotels, they're looking for um, an environment that reminds them of a family, they want to integrate themselves into local neighborhoods, and they do spend money in our town. So there is uh, an economic impact from these people coming into Petaluma. Um, it was interesting when I was hearing that um, Healdsburg and Tiburon and Mammoth had banned overnight rentals. Well, um, Healdsburg has 131 overnight on uh, Airbnb. Mammoth has about 70 and um, where was the other place? Tiburon has hundreds. So if we take ourselves off there, we're just taking ourselves off the competition. And I don't believe that this is a huge um, revenue maker for um, individuals. It's most of the people are renting out a certain amount of nights per month. Um, I do understand, you know, there's a financial impact in this. TOT is important to our city and it's important to running our services. I would recommend that the city is looking at, um, my recommendations would be looking at good practice into the towns, see what someone else is doing, if the simple guidelines, I think looking at uh, conditional use permits would take people off the map. They wouldn't be able to comply to them, they wouldn't be able to afford them, and you'd just basically shut them down. So I do think some regular um, guidelines, I'd be happy to be part of that, and I'm sure I would like to see the people that are involved in Airbnb offering their accommodation to be invited to that table and have more um, notice before a meeting like this so that they can actually truly be involved. If you look at the reviews on Airbnb of people that have stayed at our um, Airbnbs here, they're amazing. They love Petaluma. They come back. They're from all over the world. So um, let's take those types of things into consideration. I think if there is a nuisance, we need to deal with those situations on an individual basis. I think one situation does not basically express how everyone else is working on this. So I think we need to be careful with that type of overall look. I think it's interesting that we ask 
Airbnb to look at collecting TOT up front. I might be a huge challenge, but why not? Airbnb is here to stay. We decided I would think it would be a real shame to take ourselves off that. And I think that we need to be careful not to look unwelcoming. Petaluma prides itself on being a great place and a really welcoming place to be. Thank you. Thank you. Darren Sufford to be followed by Stephanie Perlman. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank you for taking your time to look into this matter. My name is Darren Seifert. I moved up here from San Francisco. That always puts a bad parlor on people from Petaluma. Folks have lived here their whole lives and such, and then the city people come on up. There was a reason my wife and I decided to raise our three sons here. It's because of the outlook of Petaluma. We wanted the neighborhood that I grew up in. I wanted the trees. I wanted to leave it to Beaver neighborhood. And I found it. Found it right here in Petaluma. I raised three sons here. Two are currently serving in the Navy. Another one just finished college. I discussed this with them. I said, how did you like growing up in Petaluma? They loved it. Of course, teenagers or young adults don't because there's nothing to do for them after 9 o'clock at night. But that's okay for me. I was a parent. But honestly, when you're looking at this, is you really have to consider, my wife and I talked, we thought, you know what, it's the neighborhood we really, really liked. I got away from San Francisco because I didn't like the influx of rental units that came into the areas I was living in. Now, I'm not talking about Airbnbs. I'm talking about rentals. We had new people coming into our neighborhood. I had two new babies at home, a third one on the way. We found Petaluma. We found home. I loved it here. I liked that whole thing. I think you have a lot to consider here for the people that live here. Number one is to keep the areas just like it was when I moved up. If I want to move somewhere else, if things change, I'll move. I have no problem with moving. And I'll tell my friends. But I'd rather tell them, come on up. This is the place we grew up. This is Midtown Terrace in San Francisco. This is Twin Peaks. We found it. We found it here. The other thing I do concern about is, yeah, I'm a little fussy about where I live. I like it. I keep my house groomed, well painted. I like the neighborhoods. I like to sit on my porch. I don't park my car in front of my house. There's a reason. I don't want a car in front of my house. That's why we have a garage. That's why I have a driveway or one, a carport, whatever you have. Use the facilities that you bought when you bought the house. If you change something to make it impact your neighborhood, and then maybe in, for you it's a good way if you're there, but for your neighbors it might be a negative way. I raised three sons, I had lots of cars, and I was very, very cautious and careful of where we parked. Luckily, my in-laws lived across the street. We used their parking lot a lot. But they moved up here with us too. So again, I'm sorry that you're going through a lot of trials and tribulations with this, but please listen to everyone on both sides of the table to try and keep Petaluma the way it is. I understand people need to do what they can in their own homes, but make sure they follow the rules and regulations to keep why they bought that house at that location originally the same as everybody else. Appreciate your time and energy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Stephanie Perlman, and this is our, my last speaker okay. slip. Hi, I've, um, I live at 300 West Street, right at where Liberty Street and, and West Street intersect, just like a block outside of the historic district. And um, my husband's a builder, and I'm pretty familiar with you know architectural styles and layouts and city development. And um, I would say that my neighborhood, um, I'm aware of one B&B about a block and a half away. Um, the, 
houses are very close to the street for the most part. They are also, and a lot of people will have like a living room on, you know, facing the street and then a bedroom often facing the street also. And because that's the way it was, a, it was an old city when the lots were developed and um, a lot of the homes are old. And um, it was basically laid out as a very urban city rather than with a lot of setbacks. So everybody's pretty smushed together. And, you know, with my neighbor sneezes next door, I can pretty much hear him. Um, I would just like to say that uh, there, there can be a nuisance factor with the bed and breakfast, with the parking and noise level, late night comings and goings. And that is truly a reality when you live so close to the street and so close to the neighboring houses, especially in the old districts. And I would like you to consider that when you are, you know, um, thinking about, you know, how you're going to address B&Bs in the residential area. Okay, that's all I'd like to say. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. That's the last speaker we have for uh, item 1A1, short-term rentals. Does anyone else want to address this issue? If not, I'm closing public comment on this one topic. And I'd like to ask staff if there are any comments, something they've heard they'd like to uh, respond back to, or and then I'll bring it back to council. I just wanted to clarify, uh, Council Member Healy asked about some of the criteria for the B&Bs. Concentration was one of the criteria that was adopted with that. There was an additional finding that needed to be made if there was another B&B within 300 feet. So that was something or is something that's in that existing legislation. Thank you. I'm happy to answer any uh, questions. I'll ask uh, council, is there any feedback? Or the staff is looking for some direction. So uh, Mr. Healy. <coughs> sure. Um, well, I. I I think this is an area where we should proceed, but we should probably proceed um, carefully. Um, just not knowing the actual circumstances in Mammoth and Healdsburg and Tiburon, but kind of having a sense of how these things can develop. Um, probably the common theme with those is that this is an issue that, you know, the camel's nose got under the corner of the tent and mushroomed very quickly before. Um, before some reasonable regulations could be put in place, and the upshot was that they got banned entirely. So I think, uh, you know, if, if we can come up with some guidelines that um, ameliorate the the potential problems with this, then then we won't be in the position of having to do that. One thing I'd, I'd like to do um, is to get some data in in terms of what's actually out there, with it, to the extent that staff can identify the Airbnb. Um, venues in our community to identify where they are and, and differentiate between ones where the owner's living there and just rents out one room or possibly two rooms. I, I see those as being in a different category as, as ones where the entire house gets rented out um, for, for a weekend or something. And, you know, we, are, I think, are all familiar with press reports of a house in, in the Guerneville area that was rented out and then a deck collapsed and, and there were a lot of injuries and that, that would that would be more problematic from my viewpoint than just, you know, renting out your, your, your kid, your grown child's former bedroom. Um, but I do think the proximity issue is pro something we should be looking at. Um, 
um, there might be other issues around compatibility of the neighborhood um, and then there's one issue that the city and I city attorney and I were going back and forth on and, and neither of us know the answer to it and that's whether this kind of a use would be something that a neighbor would need to disclose if they went and sold their house on the real estate disclosure forms um, so that's something that you know could be checked out fairly quickly um, and I do think the process that uh, that we um, in, engage in on this should be open to the public there should probably be uh, a hosted meeting um, um, where there can be more give-and-take than there was at this meeting but you know a lot of the the stakeholders are here and I think this has been a healthy start to that discussion so I'll stop with that thank could, you sir could I ask a, a point of what you said uh, you said something about proximity what did you mean what Ms. Hines was talking about in our uh, B&B ordinance there you don't want a, a whole neighborhood overrun with B&Bs you probably wouldn't want five five houses on a single block with this kind of a use okay so um, concentration exactly okay but you also then mentioned um, co compatibility with the neighborhood and I just threw that out as, as a, a, a general I don't have any specific ideas on that but I just okay and, and the disclosure that you're talking about, disclosure by the people who are actually hosting or the people who like live next door to them and want to rent their, sell their house and have, do they have to disclose that someone has an Airbnb next door? I, that's a question I don't know the answer to. It would be, it would be uh, the real estate sales disclosure form in terms of what, what kinds of you know, noisy uses are in your neighborhood or those kinds of things. Any other comments from council? Mr. Harris? Thank you. Um, well, it was a good discussion. There's a lot to, to consider. Um, I, I, I sense that uh, the Airbnb, it's, it's here to stay. They're obviously a leader in the space. They're going to have a lot of uh, capital behind them. So just how do we regulate this and how do we do it going forward? Um, I, I, there's a lot of questions. I don't know if it's going to be to the Airbnb themselves, if they're hard to get a hold of, or maybe you'll have more time now with the direction. But, you know, the TOT capture, I think if I remember correctly, you said earlier when they when a normal business pulls the business license, that's when the TOT is triggered. If there's some way we could figure out if we can do it online or if there's a better way to do that, um, that would be interesting. Um, on the visitor's aspect, I, I agree that this, there's definitely a non-traditional visitor that would be coming to town and, and I can envision um, uh, kind of marketing that around specific events that we do have here in town and then specifically market to those. It was interesting when those were, w those were brought up. Um, so be, as we're going through this research, I think simultaneously we should be looking at the marketing aspect um, of this versus I know we're where this discussion is focused on regulation and staff feedback, but I think that while we're doing the whole thing, we should be looking at both sides. Because I'd like personally to see the uh, regulations. What is what was the prohibition, and what got those municipalities to that? Kind of like what Mr. Councilmember Healy was was referring to, of if it just got out of control and they just did a, a, a quick prohibition, or what led up to that, and um, what municipalities are allowing it and, and what are they comfortable with and is that working so I think there's a lot here in front of us to, d to discuss and have additional meetings and you know have more public meetings for discussion but you know I, I do think it's here to stay but I do think that there's something here that we can uh, craft um, to find a middle ground here for the neighborhoods and for the, the people that are, that are trying this service any other comments yeah I do Ms. Barrett um, okay, yeah, um, 
Yeah, I do think that this is not unlike uh, Amazon.com or anything else. This is just the Internet um, moving into yet another business model and sort of turning it on its head. Um, anyone who knows me knows I'm all about TOT tax. Um, I really I think it should be higher. I think people really do want to come. You guys are all giving us um, evidence that people want to come. and. Um, we're also hearing that the people who do the hosting uh, aren't aren't opposed to paying that tax either, and I I think um, I think it you know that is something that I think the city absolutely has to get on top of, and this any discussion about this moving forward has to involve TOT collection, and you know it's not so hard to find out where these Airbnbs are. They're just you know you just go on Airbnb and you get the map. You know it's. Marie just was saying, you know, there's 177 here, 100 there. You know, the reason she knows that is she just goes and, and clicks on it, and then you get to choose like which one is in the area you're interested in, and then you get to talk. Um, you know, at the risk of really stepping into a family dispute here, um, I really think that if there are problems with Airbnbs in your neighborhood, and it doesn't sound like most of the people who came up and spoke have had problems with their neighbors. Um, but clearly some have and and I do think that that needs to be resolved in some kind of forum probably other than this and 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 I think that would be a good thing because I don't think that is the heart of this discussion um, I think most of the people who were hosts came up here and said you know I, I'm in this house I don't want someone spending the night here that I think might be on Megan's list or Megan's law or you know effective like that they're they're vetting these people they're they're having them spend the night at their house and someone else brought up about you know having kids come home and trust me <laughs> I mean you know you can have adult kids come home when the parents are gone and you wish they were renting it to someone else um, so so you know I mean it, it you can't really control what happens at someone else's house and um, but you can be a good neighbor and that's the key here I think um, the issues that um, were brought up about uh, how many Airbnbs there are or any of that kind of thing in a neighborhood, I think that is something we need to weigh in on. I think we need, if it's not a CUP, we need some kind of licensing that just allows people to go ahead with that so it makes it easier for code enforcement. Um, I think um, parking sounds like a critical issue, and I really get that, and I do think that that is something that people need to say this is how I'm going to address parking in my neighborhood um, nightly turnover I think that is an issue I think you know you may rather have someone staying there for two or three nights rather than just one night someone one night someone else one night someone else um, because there is less car movement a lot of people is probably like to stay in places that are closer to the downtown or you know if they're here to um, do some other event there they want to be near there if they uh, we ever get tournaments in this town that might be you know a place where people would go and and be in an Airbnb there so um, I don't think that this is something that really is in competition with the Sheraton or other hotels in town I think it's a totally different market and I, I do think um, you know that's not really an issue uh, but I do really do believe we need a community discussion here once staff 
either be, either staff needs to craft something first and then have a discussion or we need to um, let people know that we need them to send more of their comments and what their con specific concerns are so that we can then really, really hone in on this and, and get to some place where everybody's feeling good about it. No one wants everybody having a rental on their block, but you know, there's this young man from, from the Netherlands who would be a wonderful person to chat with if you're out watering your lawn or something. So um, I, think, I think we're on the same page on this up here. Mr. Kearney. Uh, a lot of people have said a lot of things uh, already, so I don't, I'm not going to, you know, repeat what people have said. Uh, I know from my personal experience um, using Airbnb, uh, I know when I went to uh, Maui, I used it, and, um, you know, I, I submitted my request, and the guy replied back, and it, he'd already Googled me and, you know, pulled up information on who I was before he even replied back. And in his reply back, mentioned, "Oh, I see your city council member from Petaluma," you know, which was kind of creepy. But, um, <laughs> but you know, that being said, he still was willing to rent from me. And um, and you know, I know for me, I didn't, I didn't come with a car. It was I, I used another new uh, service uh, called Uber to you know take a. Uh, a car service from the airport to you know to the rental so um, so I, I think there's you know it's going to be a healthy discussion and I look forward to it as we go forward but I, I do really encourage that we do a good job of reaching out to the folks that do have the Airbnb rentals here in town uh, and look at you know making sure we have those folks in, in, in invited because I know we only had a couple here tonight and one of them had said that they didn't know about it till last minute um, but I, I think we have a lot of a lot of information to kind of bring together and and move forward and, and thankfully other cities have already tackled this a little bit so we can um, use some of the the experiences they've had um, and you know it would, I think it would be great if maybe uh, if uh, Ms. Hines isn't successful getting a hold of the Airbnb folks because they're based in San Francisco, to my knowledge. That maybe if our uh, our, our city attorney were, were to craft an email or a letter to them, just saying, "Hey, we would love to have you participate in this discussion." I think that might be helpful. Sometimes that that attorney thing gets uh, a response uh, pretty quickly. Um, so, anyway, that's my input, and I appreciate everyone coming out tonight. And, and you know, we did hear everything you guys had to say and and it's always great to have the feedback from folks uh, on both sides of the coin so thank you so our intention here this evening was to give staff direction uh, there was I thought some good suggestions made by the speakers uh, I'm a concerned as has been mentioned before about TOT you have uh, uh, your your renting rooms, and however you're doing this, you're competing against other markets. Uh, the end, uh, you need to pay your fair share. So I, the TOT is an issue for me. It makes me wonder if we we did the the B and B and R one zoned areas uh, prematurely. Uh, if we had a crystal ball, could look ahead and see this thing called, you know this new system air rooms I uh, 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 just interesting to me there was a suggestion about looking at other jurisdictions and good practices about other jurisdictions from other jurisdictions uh, on this subject I think that might be advantageous and and last uh, I, I fully agree with mr. Healy the, the issue of 
renting a room or two rooms in a house versus uh, renting the house. Uh, having uh, people who are coming to a wedding stay in a room in your house versus the whole wedding party taking over the house, I, I think is two different things. So I'm looking for that separation. And with that, I'd, I'll ask staff, are you think you have enough to move forward? Is this clear as mud here? Yeah, I think we have some good, good direction. All right. With that, we are going to move forward to our next item, implementation of development impact fees. And if you're all welcome to stay, this will be exciting stuff. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to give you about a minute to clear the room. And I thank you all for coming this evening and appreciate your input. That's going to accelerate things. Huh? This is going to accelerate things. I hope so. And I mean, Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to move forward with this public meeting. So if you want to participate and or observe, that's great. Otherwise, I'd ask you to you know, either take a seat or move out into the foyer if you have discussions you'd like to carry on one-on-one. -on -one. We're moving on to the number two in our list of workshop zoning code updates, implementation of development impact fees. And I'll turn back to staff. Good evening, Vice Mayor, Council Members. Um, the next item is certainly not as interesting as, uh, as the last, so judging by the lack of people in the room, but they are uh, no, nonetheless important. Uh, there's, for the most part, four separate areas within this category that we'd like some just quick feedback. I don't think this needs to take nearly as much um, time. Uh, the first issue uh, revolves around some simple definitions of single family versus multifamily housing. Um, the way the definitions in the fee resolutions are currently worded, um, there's a, they rely on the California uh, Building Standards Code. And that's different than the definition that we have in our fee studies. And it kind of narrows our ability to look at the difference between a, a multifamily and a single family and make sure that we're charging the appropriate fee um, based on those uses. So we're recommending to defer those to the fee studies. Um, it might be easier if we just kind of go in order rather than go through them. So if there's any comments or questions on that, I'm happy to answer that before moving on. Ms. Barrett? Thank you. Uh, these definitions. Why do we need the word detached? Um, is that something in our definition? Because it would seem to me that a multifamily residential shall be any residential that does not qualify as a, as detached single family. Mm -hmm. Could you cite a, your page, please? Oh, on page three of the staff report. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry about that. Um, 
you know, if you just had a house that was a single family home that was divided up into uh, apartments, as some of the older homes in this town have been, that would be a detached single family dwelling that's become a multi family residence. Uh, and, and the other thing is the single family residential uh, shall mean detached single family dwelling. Well, what if we get a product brought into town? Um, let's say around the station area that actually is like row houses right. where everybody has a single home but you know uh, like out in the avenues in the city where they're detached there's they're attached but they're not connected to each other everybody has their own house right so why are we using that word detached I just got hung up on that and I don't know if it's no, and that's something that we can look at whether it's worth removing that altogether because one of the problems we're running in with the um, with the California Builders Standards Code is it actually has a definition for multifamily that's based on proximity. So it could be a detached house, but if it's within a certain proximity to the adjacent house, then it can be considered multifamily. And obviously, just because it's not connected doesn't mean the impacts aren't any different. Right. So we can certainly look at that as part of bringing this back. Okay, well, that, that's where I got caught in the first part. So I also yeah. wanted to clarify that for each of these, this can come back at a sooner um, date than all the other things that we're talking about because this doesn't need to go to planning commission. It'll just come back to council based on the direction I received this evening. Mr. Healy? Yes. Um, with, within the, um, the fees, there are different fees in some categories for single family or for multi family than for single family. And so if you're just detached versus attached, the Uh, no, there should be, I think all the fees, there's just different fee amounts for each category, but there aren't different fees. Right, no, different fee amounts, but yeah. if you have a different fee amount in some category for single family attached versus single family detached, then how would you differentiate? I think the, in the old fees we used to do that, in the current fees I believe we only have single family versus multifamily. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. I think that's right. I think that yeah. because the distinction is density based and impacts related to that. So it could be a vestige or there might be some substantive reason. And, you know, as Scott said, we can look at that and we okay. that's back. Fine. Any other comments on that? Okay. Uh, the second issue is the, um, this issue of, of credits for prior uses on a site. Back when we brought the uh, fee resolutions to the council, um, I believe it was last November, or actually it was probably October, um, there was a lot of discussion about whether um, an existing use on a site, if it's getting redeveloped into something else, should, they, should that new development receive a credit for that prior use? And the consensus of the council at that point in time had been that there was some value in incentivizing non-residential projects, um, especially in the in the context of the loss of redevelopment, there aren't many opportunities anymore to incentivize, but there wasn't uh, much support, it seemed, at that point in time to provide an incentive to residential projects, which typically have had uh, less of a challenge uh, penciling out their performers, et cetera. So the issue has come up because there have been some residential projects with existing um, uses on the site that would be redeveloped. and. Uh, and this issue came up, so we wanted to just circle back on the with the council regarding that. Mr. Healy. Um, yeah, thank you for bringing this back, and this is one that I've been focused on for a while, but interestingly, it's also one where my thinking may be in the process of shif shifting a little bit, and 
one of the eye-openers for me was that the uh, proponents of the Maria Drive apartments don't seem to be terribly concerned about getting credit for the uh, low-density office space that had been out there before, which would seem to indicate that the economics of that kind of uh, project these days is not not terribly dependent upon getting that kind of a credit. Um, on the other hand, I do think that there are certain projects closer to our priority areas, priority development areas, that we would want to incentivi incentivize whether they're um, commercial or non or residential. So I look at the um, the Golden Eagle Shopping Center, which we'd love to redevelop probably as mixed use, which would mean a, a, a mixture of um, um, residential and non-residential. I'd, I'd love to be able to give them a credit for that, to incentivize that to shift over. Um, I look at the silk mill, which currently is zoned for, I guess, uh, more of a commercial usage, but in the past it was talked about as as townhouses, and you know, if that came back, I'd, I'd be willing to do that. And then I look at the old Chevron site with the hotel possibility downtown, and I'd like to see that. So maybe something that's within a, a, a radius of, of the two rail stations, uh, or, or some, something like that. I, I just throw that out as is is targeting this to where we we really want to make it make things happen. Mr. Bashmeyer. So to follow up on what Mr. Healy is saying, almost to incentivize transit-oriented development and, in, and promote mixed-use development in what might be otherwise blighted areas. Is that Yeah, you, you, you want to encourage property owners to redevelop their properties in ways that are consistent with current thinking as opposed to what was done 40 years ago. And so that would be, you know, our way of incentivizing it, mm -hmm. I mean, it's essentially. As opposed to, um, you know, uh, I don't know, a gas station into a Starbucks. Mr. Harris, um, I mean that's a great idea. I think that makes a lot of sense in the downtown core. And now, and now that the issue of the, the second train station was brought up, I think that would be great to have that on the books as well as additional momentum as we get out there into the future to encourage the, the second station. So if we had that in place as well uh, up there, I think that would uh, show them how serious we are of wanting that second station along with the other things that are happening on the, on the northern end. So that's a, I think that's a great idea to add both of those around the, the station. So I would agree with that as well. Um, yeah, I, I only like it in the uh, the doing this um, this incentive for residential would only be um, as transit oriented and also um, in intensification or or with a blighted area like you mentioned. I think those are those are the conditions under which I think that residential should get that because residential really costs the city a lot more than it ever brings to the city. Um, I still have an issue with giving people credit for um, intensification when they're not going to actually even use the buildings that they are building on that site, when they're just demolishing the buildings. It's not, I, I, I just don't see that as a, re, a reuse and, um, you know, it just, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me to be exactly what what the intention was in terms of intensification when you just demolish what is there. So I'm not really in favor of that uh, aspect of it, even for the non-residential, um, for commercial. So that's my two cents. Mr. Diven, your third point. 
the next issue um, falls under the fee adjustments category in, in all of the different fee resolutions that were passed that evening with the exception of the traffic impact fee. Um, each of the fees now have a provision in there that allows um, projects on educational as well as public, semi-public lands, if they're kind of uh, accessory to the use that's there, to uh, be exempt or have the fees not applicable to that use. An example is the snack bar and, and uh, field house that went in at, or is going in at St. Vincent's as well as the um, the uh, expansion over at St. James Church. St. Vincent's waited until after the fee resolutions were done and so they weren't, none of these fees were applicable to them. The uh, St. James, as an example, pulled their permits I think six months before the fees became effective. Um, all the fees had a refund provision that would allow those types of uses to get a refund with the exception of the traffic impact fee because of this whole redevelopment supplement and some of the other challenges that we had with current um, funding of, of some of these major interchange projects and all of that. And so I wanted to get some clarification from the City Council as to what your intent was, whether the traffic should have been captured as part of that refund for St. James. I would say that they've been issued a refund on all of the other fees uh, subject to the provisions that are in that legislation. Mr. Vice Mayor. Sir. Um, yeah, so when uh, the uh, Assistant City Manager was trying to explain this to me uh, a week or ten days ago, he characterized the, uh, the failure to include the refund provision in the traffic uh, impact uh, aspect of the program as, as a drafting error. Would, would you still agree with that, or was there some rationale for it? I think the problem was the, the refund provision that's in there, if applied to the traffic fee, would have had a, a different set of consequences, and so it wasn't carried over into that. And what we didn't do was finesse it to make it a different, reword it differently so that it would allow the um, public, semi-public type of uses to be exempted from the fee. Um, because remember, there still is a difference between the 2011 or 2012 fees and the 2008 fees. Uh, in the traffic, there was a reduction, so that would then open the door for all of those projects to get a partial refund. It wouldn't include the redevelopment supplement, but it would have opened the door. But only to for properties on that one particular limited zoning, which only exists in a few places uh, if, in the town. If we had the same refund provision that all the other ones have, then that would have opened the door for a host of, of refunds. Can you give me a, some other examples? So, for example, the, the Regency project could have gotten a traffic uh, reduction. But they're not on a public, no, semi-public, or education uh, zoning in the in the zoning map. No, we have that. There's that piece, but then there's the actual refund provision that says applications based on 2008 development fees paid. It's that piece on uh, chapter four in the middle of the page, is what actually allows the. Uh, See, I, I guess my my intention was to to allow refunds for um, for anything on that that zoning. Um, for which we were exempting right. the fees. And no, and that's I don't, just the clarification I, I, I see. need. Okay, so is that something we could do? I think that we can then reword that provision and update that resolution as part of the rest of the work that, that we're doing give, that would allow that I, to happen. I, I want to limit it to the, 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 the zoning and the general plan land uses where, where they were going to be exempt. So, for instance, St. Vincent's with their snack shack or whatever it was at the high school was exempt because we don't think there's going to be a traffic right. impact. And then... I believe it's staff's un under belief that the 
community room or whatever it is at St. James so is similarly yes. not going to have a traffic, traffic and, impact. And that statement is in their fees. What's not in the fees is our ability to issue them a refund for those fees paid. Okay, but can, we can limit it to that zoning. where the, It already is currently set up that way. We'll have to do the refund provision differently to make sure that it's limited to just that. Sounds like the city attorney wants to jump in here. Mr. Danley. Was I making noises? That <laughs> anyway, that look. I had a look. Um, so there, there's not, um, I don't think there was an oversight either on the council's part or on staff's part in terms of these two somewhat differently intended exceptions. And, and I think I can explain briefly. Um, the rationale for creating a complete exception, I think it is right, Scott, for the quasi-public uses is that um, is that th that's based on a view that those uses are more in the nature of public facilities that address impacts than they are in the na in the nature of private development that creates impacts. So that you know school type facilities um, are actually addressing you know new residents and the impacts that they bring, um, as opposed to in the nature of a housing development that's going to bring a bunch of citizens and and the impacts that that they're going to bring to the community along. So, so that's one rationale. That exception was not established retroactively, right? It was just based on when permits are pulled. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the issue, I think, with that one. The um, exception that the council... But it was retroactive with respect to all the other impacts fees. That, that's what I'm confused over. No. So So let me address the other exception. The other exception that the council um, endorsed and, and directed be incorporated in the legislation was to address pipeline projects um, or recent projects that had paid the higher fees before the fee reductions that occurred as part of the reexamination and re recalculation and new fee studies. Um, to, I think, reflect that those new fee studies and new fee analyses and new fee rates reflected accurately and uh, were the most accurate reflection of the city's infrastructure needs going forward that it needed new development to fund. And therefore, there was no reason for those recent projects to be paying at a higher rate since, since based on the latest updated analysis, it was appropriate that they they pay at that rate, and so that's why those those recent payors got the benefit of those updates, so as to not penalize them based on a, on a time factor. So, taking those two together, you could get an anonymous an anomalous potentially result, depending on the council's intent, where a quasi public use that already paid its fees would get the benefit that w what was really viewed as focusing on commercial projects th that uh, uh, of getting a refund except for traffic because that was a retroactive exception whereas the one for quasi public uses wasn't so is your are you following me so far well i i lost you where you said that the there were no quasi public refunds in any category because i don't think that's what we did no, but that they didn't. W they that just didn't. Exception is in every single fee resolution: the traffic, the parks, the open space, all of them. 
Um, what wasn't carried across was the second piece that, that Mr. Danley was just talking about, which was that the refund provision that recognizes if you paid those old fees and you're no longer subject to that and the new fees, then you deserve a refund. That piece didn't get translated into the traffic impact fee because there was a desire on the council to make sure that all traffic impact fees, even though there was a reduction, were collected because we had old Redwood Highway with funding challenges and East Washington Interchange, et cetera. And so that refund provision language that gives staff the ability to issue that refund never got carried over into the traffic. Yeah, I think you're giving the council way too much credit because we never had that discussion. Uh, we just passed the legislation that staff drafted. Uh, right. And but, but I think that quite simply, I think the only, um, unless I'm missing something, it's kind of so holler, but I think the only issue we have is that when the exception was incorporated into the updated fee program for quasi-public uses, that wasn't made retroactive. The only, um, and, and if that was, you know, and maybe that was an oversight on staff's part, it wasn't intentional if so, but, um, but the uh, retroactive piece was focused on those projects that paid at a higher rate, and so in the situation, uh, can you, I'm sorry, Scott, can you remind me what, what the um, project it was that pulled permits before the new fee changes? That was the St. James, which was the addition of a community room to the existing church. So it pulled permits and became subject to fees before the exception for quasi-public uses existed. No intention to focus on them or leave them out or whatever, um, but got the benefit of the retroactive refund for the fee changes that, you know, Regency or, or whomever else got that, that fit in that time frame. Um, so the question really is, I think maybe a simpler way to put it is, whether the council intends the quasi-public use exception to be retroactive to some point. So, so to, to sh shift the question around, as I understand it, St. Vincent's came in with a project of their own, say, a year later, six months later, and was exempt completely. Because that because the they came in public. under the new fees entirely. Right. Yeah. I, I you know I thought that we were going back to uh, whatever it was the five year of the general plan adoption or whatever it was for all these guys, and that you're saying that's not how the language was drafted. The language was drafted that the way that I believe that you're t talking about for everything except for the traffic, and so that's that refund provision, the ability for staff to issue the refund is what's lacking in traffic, and so that's something that with the input of the council this evening, we can work on correcting. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll stop hogging the floor here in a second, but I just make the point that if, if it's staff's belief, as I believe you've indicated it is, that the, the St. James project doesn't have a traffic impact, then I think we should go ahead and treat that retroactively. And, and if that's the direction, that's fine, but we need some guidance on the retroactive reach. I don't know how... Um, I think it's for those public, semi-public projects. Right, but I don't... And the traffic impact fee, because it's not an issue within the other fees. And I just don't know how many, if any, projects are involved and in what the council's direction would be and how far just retroactive that exception would apply, because re remember, it's sort of a... It's a structural feature of the of the city's fee program and most fee programs that um, the fee liability on the part of an applicant gets created when they 
uh, pull their permits with respect to whatever fee program is in effect at that time. And so if, if, the, if it's the council desire that a different time trigger be at play, then that's something we'd need to address in the legislation, which we can certainly Ms. do. Barrett, and then Mr. Harris, and then what I'd like to do is allow staff to complete the presentation, open it to public comment, and then we'll come back again. So Ms. Oh, Barrett. Well, no, I'll wait for public comment. I was just going to weigh in on All right. Mr. Harris? I'll wait for him. Public comment as well. Scott? Okay. Fourth point? Oh, the fourth point. Oh, Sorry. Um, the last one is uh, re relating to time of payment for the wastewater fee and the way that that's currently structured. Um, if there's a, a new wastewater impact, that the trigger for the payment of that fee is at the time of a building permit being pulled. However, if a industrial user, for example, were to add a second shift, and they're not making any changes to the building or anything else, they've essentially doubled their impact, but they don't have to pull a building permit, so there's no trigger there. They do need to update their wastewater discharge permit, but that's not what's in the language of the fee in terms of triggering the, um, the ability to collect for that additional impact. And so what's in here is a proposal to add operational changes um, requiring a new or revised industrial wastewater discharge permit to the um, time for fee payment as well as for the um, yeah, time of payment piece of that legislation. So we'd return with that. Questions here or no. we'll go to public comment. Mr. Healy. Um, thanks. So just conceptually, let's say a company wanted to add a second shift and that certainly does increase the uh, wastewater impacts but doesn't it increase the water impacts and the traffic impacts and everything else as well? How conceptually, how do you, where do you draw the line at uh, uh, just wastewater? We, we had some internal staff discussion about that very question. Um, and apparently it's not, um, what, what did Dan say? He said they'd have to do a little bit more noodling as part of this process, depending on what the council's direction is. but. Uh, uh, it's not it's not as obvious that there's necessarily a capacity impact that would need to be addressed with respect to water um, just because of how the city's water's funded and how um, how it's controlled through meter size uh, which is sort of a water consumption rate as opposed to necessarily a, a volume based recovery which which is recovered through the commodity charge which is a different charge from this this is about the system's um, carrying capacity, and especially the need to upsize system, um, like like new pipes, bigger pipes. So that's something that's, that's, that um, utility staff would look at as part of this exercise. Um, but, but they're pretty clear that there's um, a range of potentially very significant impacts that would not be captured um, or, or that, that would not be linked to an entitlement change, but that would be linked to an industrial user permit change, such as a, a change in the influent itself, its strength, or a change in the volume of it due to adding shifts or production or that sort of thing. I'm fine with that answer. I just wanted to know why we were stopping at wastewater. Are breweries and cheese people and such, is this what we're focusing here? Yeah, the industrial type of uses. Typically. Industrial uses. Ms. Barrett. Yeah, I, I think the direction that um, that you're going in in the staff report was is good, and I, I do see how it, it's totally different from traffic impact of, of another shift. Um, I mean, this is, this is a whole different 
eight hours of volume of discharge that would be different. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I get I get the difference on that. So I would su be supportive of staff's um, direction on this. With that, I am going to open this to. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh no! I, if you were looking at me, I was going to agree with the previous speakers. Operational change, addition, and definition is fine as well. All right. I'm going to open this to public comment. I have no speaker slips for number two, implementation of development impact fees. If there's anyone in the chambers who'd like to address council on this topic. Seeing none, we're going to close public comment on this specific issue. Bring it back to the council, Ms. Barrett. Yeah, I, I would like to uh, say that I do not think under any circumstances we should be uh, refunding traffic impact fees. Every, I mean, um, I, I think I've been on record a long time, and I actually do recall the, the conversation about um, traffic impact fees when we had this discussion at council last time. Um, you know, this, this is what everybody is concerned about in our town is traffic and the impacts on our streets and the quality of our streets. So giving back or uh, money for traffic impacts, I think, is, is wrong. I think it's the wrong decision, and I would not be supporting that. Um, I'm okay with the other refunds, but you know, it's not my first choice, but I, I, I know that that's where we're going on that one. Other council comments? Harris? Well, one of the questions I was going to ask staff, and I think I got a head nod, but just kind of for the record, is it St. James is the only one that's in this circumstance where they pulled them before and we're talking about after and that timing difference there? My understanding is that that's the only one that would qualify under that use, yeah. Right. And then back to kind of the confirmation of staff has said that, it, that there's not an additional traffic from this community center. Okay, then I'm fine with the this, the one-time refund on this very specific circumstance as well. And it doesn't set up a, a precedent. We have no other commercial developments that would say, "Hey, what about me too?" Not if it's not if it's worded to to meet the intent of the council. If it's geared just towards those educational and public semi-public type of projects, and we're good with that. It, right. If if um, if we're just talking about the the quasi public uses and they're being exempt from all fees uh, because of you know being in the nature of fee address or impact addressing rather than impact causing, then I think that's pretty clear direction for us. That's a pretty straightforward exemption. Um, th that still leaves you know guidance on the. Um, the issue of you know quote unquote incentives um, for certain kinds of development that's a, that's a different class of exemptions with with different issues where we need guidance i'm I'm listening to staff and I'm comfortable and and if the recommendation or the, the what we're saying is this one um, uh, example one issue and making an adjustment for this one project. I'd be comfortable with that, given the description of the project, or what, however it's worded, uh, that that I'd be comfortable with that. But I, I too remember the conversation when you brought this staff brought this be back before us before. Um, we lowered fees, and the traffic impact fees were the one thing that just seemed sort of sacred that we we're going to stick with. I, I don't think this one project will make or break one way or the other. I'd. I'd I'm, I'm concerned that we don't get a, a me too, hey, you did it here, why not for me as well? 
uh, that example. The, uh, the credit for prior usage, I, I agree with that, but also I, I agree with the idea of uh, incorporating some aspect of the prior building. Silk mill is, I think, a good example. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the whatever is going to end up eventually, that at some point in time, that property will be developed and then they'll incorporate those great brick walls and windows and stuff in the, and then whatever new project goes in there, condominiums, hotel, whatever, usage, commercial, whatever usage in there. I would, but they're incorporating the part of that building. So I'd, I'd like to see that as part of, as we go forward. And, and again, I'd like to, the, the, the ref, the maintaining the traffic fees as they exist with the one exception that's been discussed and recommendation to change the the whatever activation trigger for the wastewater impacts I'd be interested in seeing a recommendation from staff that we can address that and again I think you've heard direction from staff or excuse me <laughs> direction from the council Freudian slip uh, direction from council on uh, on uh, what we'd like to see have happen as far as these uh, uh, commercial enterprises come in and there's a number of new breweries that have expressed interest or actually have uh, landed here, uh, the, the, the cheese industry, the dairy industry, uh, whatever it may be that, uh, th that we need to try to accommodate. So what trigger uh, that would more clearly identify and clarify, I'd, I'd be interested in seeing that. Is there any other comment from Council on item two? Seeing none, we're going to close this. Are, uh, Mr. Devin, do you have everything you need? I do, thank you. All right, we're moving on to number three, the Cottage Food Act. So the next couple items are items that um, they're updates to our local zoning code to meet um, state or federal laws um, so I'll quickly go through them um, similar to what you have in your packet and then we can answer any questions first one is the cottage food act which is a state bill that was passed in 2012 it became effective on January 1st of 2013 and the cottage food act allows preparation and or packaging of certain kinds of foods in private kitchens so these are foods that have been determined to be non-potentially hazardous foods. So it, it prohibits anything with meat or creams, um, but it's baking, um, jams, candy, dried fruit, those kind of things. So our current ordinance under home occupation prohibits issuing a home occupation for anything that has to do with food, any packaging of food. So obviously this is in direct conflict with the state's um, bill, the Cottage Food Act. We also have in our ordinance um, a subsection that says a home occupation is prohibited if you need any other kind of permit from another agency, um, a state permit. And food, Cottage Food Act does require um, a permit from the county health department. So we would, our, prop, our proposal is to come back with modifications that basically brings our home occupation ordinance in line with the Cottage Food Act. So for grandma's growing peaches in the backyard, canning them, making jams, taking them to farmer's market, 
Is this the issue that we're yes. trying to address? Yes, the, we, I have my own beehives, and I've, I'm honey that I'm uh, harvesting from the beehives and taking that to farmers market. They're, yeah, I don't know. I I'm not sure if honey's on there. Honey's it is on there. Okay. Um, oh yeah, there it is. Honey. Um, so yes, exactly. <laughs> and we can still keep. Um, the sections of our home occupation that regulates people coming to the door and outward impacts and to the residential nature. So so actually, that's a good segue to my question because as, as, I, as I was reading, thank you. As, as I was reading this, it would allow Grandma to have a semi truck full of peaches pull up and make jam out of that. So, yeah, we would limit that. We can continue <laughs> to limit that with our own, the way our ordinance is written right, in you. terms of deliveries and traffic. Nothing more than. Typical single-family To home. come to our Airbnb short-term <laughs> rental. <laughs> Other comments? No. This is mandatory zone. We're going to open so. this to public comment. Uh, item 3, which is the Cottage Food Act. Anyone in the chambers wish to speak to the Cottage Food Act? Seeing no one rise, we're closing public comment to this item. Um, I'm not sure you got what you needed. I think I got what I needed. Oh, yeah. I didn't. Did any concerns? No. It's more it's of an update. Right? It's an update. Yeah. This is what we're going to be doing. Yeah. We will bring them. Bring These are ordinance changes, so they'll go to the planning commission and then up to the council. Thank you. We're moving on to item number four, which religious land use and institutional persons act. Wow. So this is a, a federal statute that protects churches and other religious assemblies from discrimination um, through land use regulations. Um, it, it requires that jurisdictions treat churches and religious facilities um, the same as they would other similar assembly uses such as a meeting hall, schools, those type of uses. Um, currently our land use table calls religious facilities out separately from club lodge private meeting hall or from schools and in some areas um, our zoning code is more restrictive for the religious facilities than it is for the meeting halls for instance in commercial industrial and business park uh, club lodge or private meeting hall is a permitted use but a religious facility is allowed with the cup so um, that's in conflict because it's more restrictive to the church. Um, so what we're recommending is um, kind of to take the lead that's been done in the SMART code which has a single land use definition that encompasses churches, meeting halls, puts them all under one land use type. Um, so we would do that, um, eliminate the separate definitions in the ISO, and then look at the land use table and propose some there's a large church that's opened in what was previously industrial property on Payran. Correct. And how would this proposal work into their operation? Are we consistent? Well, um, that church came in because of this. Essentially, um, they we treated them like a meeting hall because of the restrictions of Yalupa, our Lupa. So what this would do is lump them all together and on a zone by zone situation we'll look at whether they should be CUPs or whether they should be permitted and get them all in line. Backtracking to a previous item, uh, there will there be fee changes and uh, refunds and, and such? Should we act on this one way or the other? Um, no. 
I don't think, for instance, the church that went into the industrial building, which was, I'm not sure that there was an additional development impact fee on that because it was an existing building, um, no square footage addition, and I would think that it would it had been classified as a less intensive use as. Uh, I'll, I'll have to look at that, but I don't think it. Is that correct? Right. It wasn't semi-public. It was industrial, um, so it's not going to trigger any refunds, and I don't even think it was charged any impact fees when that use changed. Mr. Healy. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so. I just want to thank staff for getting to this. I noticed that uh, the federal statute uh, here was passed in 2000, mm -hmm. uh, so you know, 13 years later, we're finally uh, modifying our codes, and I'm glad we haven't been sued on this one in the meantime. And thank you for staff for being uh, cognizant of this as that last application came through. But I know there's a lot of cobwebs in our city uh, ordinances, and getting rid of one of them is uh, is positive. So this is great. Ms. Barrett. Um, so what would be the effect of um, you know? As I, we did deal with Arlupa on Planning Commission in the past, and um, one of the concerns is that if a religious organization has a uh, meeting hall and then rents that out for non-religious uses, you know, for example, has the kinds of meetings that are on page seven staff report uh, under number one, you know, um, labor union meetings or political organizations, professional member organizations, or even reunions and weddings or quinceañeras or any of those kinds of things um, that are not really associated with the religious mission of the church. How's that dealt with? Well, under the way we're proposing, it would all be the same type of use, so there wouldn't be a differentiation in terms of the land use table. Okay, so would that also be true for existing uh, churches? Then could then uh, you know all be able yeah, because to because all of those type of uses would be allowed rent out their their facilities for any of those kinds of events. Right. I'm wondering if it already allows some of that because they're not church related, and I'm just right. wondering if although under our current definition of religious facility, it also includes parties. Um, it, it would be blind in terms of use regulation. Okay, so it would be. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you. It, it's kind of my impression, though, that there many of them are already doing it as it is. At, you know, I, I know one uh, political organization I'm a member of. We meet at a church, um, or you know, already, and so I, I think a lot of those are. Activities are, are happening already at the same time. Right. So, I, I agree. I think that that is happening a lot in churches. Okay. Currently. Thank you. And 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 I, I would just add what what this approach leads to is just regulation of impacts and not the institutional character of the of the entity. It, it would just be regulation of assembly type use regardless of the institutional character. And then a, a quick question to follow up on that. Um, since it does put them into the club lodge, private hall, meeting hall, kind of, they're all lumped together. The liquor licensing that some of the lodges or halls have, that's still a separate process altogether, correct? Correct. Okay. 
And we will have to look at these on a case by uh, a zone by zone because, like I said, some of them right now, a meeting hall is a permitted use, a church is a CUP. What's what's if we lump them into one? Should it be a CUP or a, a permitted use? So that will be something that we'll look at and then bring forward for the planning commission and the council. Thank you. I'm going to put this to public comment. On number four, Religious Land Use and Institutional Persons Act. Anyone in the chamber like to speak to council on this topic? Seeing no one rise, we'll close public comment on number four. Bring it back to council. Is there any additional comments on this? Ms. Hines, do you have what you need? And we're moving on to number five, definition of mixed uses. Uh, Mr. Vice Mayor, it kind of looks like there's a four and a half snuggled yes. in here. Do we want to hit that one? There's one more quick just update, and it's uh, one of those cobwebs. What did I miss? Bottom of seven. It's the mandatory housing element oh. updates. Thank you. And that's just to be brief, again, this was a, a housing act that was adopted uh, back in 2007 that's geared towards protecting um, both emergency shelters and transitional and supportive housing. And it basically limits the, uh, the ability to deny those. And one of the ways that they want to achieve that is through requiring that at least one zone be identified to permit emergency shelters without a conditional use permit or any other discretionary action. And the other is that transitional and supportive housing shall be considered a residential use and only subject to those restrictions that apply to other residential uses of the same type in the same zone. Mr. Vice Mayor. Sir. Uh, I have a question for the city attorney, if that's okay. Um, while the information that's uh, on seven is in our packet, the title of this topic is not listed on our agenda. Wouldn't it fall under the um, the oh, the it's it's a subsection of the mandatory zoning updates? Is is it or is it not? Is it separate from that? It's in the no. He's correct. It's in the staff report, but it's not in the. Um, so it's totally separate. Because the categories aren't addressed, the individual items are addressed. Yeah. Um, well, it's it is one of those items where we're just kind of letting you know that this is new state law in order to get our new housing element or our next housing element certified we have to address that and so we'll be bringing that forward as part of uh, hopefully package them with the other pieces so you, uh, even with mr. Kearney's comment we're not making a decision on this tonight can we right. uh, just have a conversation and, and start talking about this or are we better enough not even doing that mr. Danley um, it, Mr. Healy's absolutely right that um, th there's no intent or plan or um, nothing in the agenda facilitates the council taking action, um, although we had, did intend to converse and get direction. So um, we could certainly treat this like an item th that where we have under council reports where we may receive direction from the council with respect to future agendas and, and focus our exchange that way since it's not specifically listed um, on the agenda even though I think it was our, our, our intent to, to list it. So Mr. Vice Mayor, with, with that uh, would it be 
permissible for me to suggest an area that I'd like to be more further developed um, when this comes I think back. that would be totally appropriate because recall that um, we'll be returning on any of these, t any and all topics that involve any subsequent council action or regulation. Okay. So the, the staff proposal was to um, permit, make modifications to make emergency shelters permitted by right in the T5 zoning, which is uh, the zoning for the Mary Isaac Center. And I guess my question is, the T5 area, I haven't gone back and looked, but it, it encompasses a pretty significant chunk of some core properties in the downtown core, Correct. I think including the smart station site and the old Correct. haystack site. And I'd be hesitant to make making emergency shelters a principally permitted use um, on the two large parcels immediately behind the rail station. So I, I, I think we might need to think about this a little bit more. Yeah, no, there's there's certainly other options, but we need to keep in mind that you know it's an issue of demand. We need another shelter, you know, and since we have one already within that zone, the the notion was we probably don't need another one. We certainly can't afford to build another one, so that just allows us to conform to the law. But could you create a, a T five and a half and draw a line around the Mary Isaac it Center? Maybe that we could do something like that, or you're looking at another zone. But you know, for example, if you move to a public semi-public zone, well, those are spread throughout the city and they're often adjacent to residential areas and so no I like the idea of keeping it okay. kind of in the downtown core but the whole Hopper Street corridor might might be less less troublesome when we speak of emergency shelters I am thinking of emergency shelters I'm thinking of the Lucchese uh, the community center I'm thinking of the vets hall where we have due to floods and fires and earthquakes and natural emergencies, uh, disasters within the community, and we have to relocate people for a temporary period of time. But No, I agree, and, and that's often how I think most of us think of them, but within the context of this actual um, legislation, it's much more geared towards the, the shelters. Um, and part of what we want to do is, is work on the definitions to make sure that we have those clarifications. Mr. Healy's suggestion give you direction to take this forward or do we need to No, it gives us what we need to think about because when we come back to planning commission we can certainly look at and, that and, and the, the, just to clarify this doesn't restrict that use to whatever zoning is selected it just makes it those are the only ones where it would be permitted without a CUP so exactly. for instance if Cots got the funding to reopen the family center on Petaluma Boulevard South. That wouldn't be prohibited. They'd just have to go through a different process. Exactly. Okay. Other comments from council? Okay. Now, we'll move on to the definition of mixed uses. Um, so the topic of mixed use has come up quite a bit in some of the larger projects in, in recent years. And what I've tried to do in the staff report is outline how mixed use is defined, both in the general plan as well as in the implementing zoning ordinance, as well as how it's defined in the central Petaluma specific plan, and then in its implementing document, which is the SMART code. And I haven't added too much beyond that, uh, other than to, to seek input from council. I did want to kind of bring up an issue that, as staff has been talking about it, you know, we've certainly been proponents of that more 
general definition, as are a lot of the communities that I've been looking at and the consultant team that we'd worked on through the smart code and the stationary plan. I think what might be at the heart of some of the struggles here in Petaluma is that the implementing zoning ordinance doesn't really do a good job of implementing mixed use. For example, on the Deer Creek or the Regency projects, for example, you couldn't put residential on those sites because of the way that the land use table was written in the zoning ordinance for that particular mixed use category. Um, the SMART code, since everything within the CPSP is mixed use, it takes a much more comprehensive approach in making sure that all those regulations really support mixed use development with the reduced parking requirements, with different setbacks, with frontage requirements and that sort of thing. The implementing zoning ordinance um, I think lacks that, and I think that's really where the focus in the future may need to, to be with Council's direction is for, for us to really go back and look at those, the full set of regulations throughout the uh, implementing zoning ordinance and how it, it implements the concept of mixed use. Council, we have comments or questions? Staff? I have a question. Ms. Barrett. So could you clarify that a little bit, Scott, in when you say the regulations, you meaning to allow for residential in, um, in places? Right, in some of those larger, you know, I remember when we were doing the general plan, the original intent was for some of these larger parcels that could actually handle a combination of uses, that those really should have that robust mix of, of uses on them. But when you go then and look at that actual set of uses in Table 4 in the Implementing Zoning Ordinance, it doesn't allow for a, a residential component. It allowed for residential care, or it allowed for office, it allowed for commercial, but it didn't kind of allow for some of those other um, more residential type of uses to, to come in. So, um, you know, and certainly the parking requirements would have been a challenge as well because the parking was based on the full range of uses that are designed for that site and not a recognition of um, the fact that there's going to be a lot of combined trips or, you know, stop and live and shop and, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, I think there's a fundamental disconnect between the, a lot of the different sections of that ICO because it's an old, it's an old zoning ordinance. It really needs a, a comprehensive update to clean up the cobwebs that we've been talking about earlier this evening on some of those other issues, but also to, you know, make sure that we're addressing the full intent of, of the general plan. Mr. Healy. Um, thank you. Yeah. Um, so this, this is, um, one of those challenging issues and um, even more so than the Airbnb thing I think you're going to need to have uh, all the stakeholders uh, <laughs> as part of the conversation. Um, it, mixed use has a bit of a I know it when I see it um, flavor to it and um, so I, I would you know, what what's notable about this this particular discussion in the staff report as compared to some of the other sections is there's not a particularly concrete staff recommendation and I'm sure that's no accident <laughs> um, but I, I guess y you might want to I my recommendation would would be to have the Planning Commission um, engage on this issue over an extended period and see what what recommendations they want to come up with I'm going to open this to public comment. I have one speaker slip, and then we'll come back to council. Uh, James Ely. Thank you. I, I want to tell you that this is the reason that I came and not the Airbnb. <laughs> uh, but uh, I spoke with a realtor last week about uh, uh, possibly uh, initiating a project, acquiring a, pol uh, 
a property that's currently blighted and uh, in discussing the feasibility of the uh, the project uh, one of the issues that uh, uh, surrounding it is is the uh, permitted uses it is currently uh, mixed use and and it does appear that uh, the uh, uh, the project may be more economically viable uh, uh, in, in terms of if, if there's availability of uh, uh, residential use as it, as it does appear um, that uh, residential property in, in the town uh, currently is uh, and, uh, and certainly on the west side appears to be uh, valued in the marketplace more more uh, highly than uh, um, than commercial in, in fact I, I would say that it's my observation that appears to be a surplus of uh, of uh, commercial and office uh, uh, while while there appears to be uh, uh, demand for uh, for residential so uh, and and actually as as your staff pointed out the uh, um, the uh, uh, that, that exact uh, issue of the uh, for the particular property uh, that residential is is not a permitted use but mixed use is and the, and so then of course my discussion last week uh, um, um, then segued into well of uh, how little commercial has to be included in the product in, in the project so um, I I'm not asking for anything specifically but uh, I, I just wish you to understand that this uh, uh, this is a very critical issue in, in terms of the uh, potential viability, uh, particularly where uh, where existing uh, uh, properties are are blighted. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other speakers for item five, definition of mixed use? Uh, if if you would fill out a speaker slip when you're done speaking, sir, and give it to the clerk, I would appreciate it. And would you give your name, please? Uh, Eric Metzler. Um, I mean, I'm kind of late to this all this uh, mixed-use stuff uh, conversation, um, but I have to say that the idea of mixed-use is awesome. Okay, I'm not being very eloquent, but <laughs> um, but I mean, my wife and I we just recently been looking for a place to live, and one of our key criteria was we could be able to walk somewhere. Um, we want to be able to walk to dinner. We want to be able to walk to the grocery store. You know, we want to be able to walk around so mixed use is like the core of that idea um, but part of that is also we have to be able to afford where we live so I mean I, I heard some conversation talk about you know being able to accommodate residential into the mixed use and when you're accommodating that you need to accommodate I think more not just like high-end you know fancy condos and townhouses but also somewhere where a young couple could get a home. Um, my wife and I, we just recently bought a condo, but because we can't afford to live in Petaluma, we unfortunately have to leave. And we really didn't want to leave. But we can't afford um, to live here. So, and all the condo availabilities were outside of our range. We even looked at um, manufactured homes, uh, mobile homes, basically. And it was all um, uh, retirement. So when you're thinking about mixed use, you know, see if you can make it so that us young couples can stay in Petaluma. Um, 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. And if you'd fill out, no, you've had your chance, sir. I'm sorry. If you'd fill out, yeah, it's in the back there and, and give it to the clerk, I'd appreciate it. Any other speakers, public speakers for this item? I'll bring it back to council. Ms. Barrett. Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to remind the council that um, defining mixed use was one of our goals we set in, in our meeting at the beginning of this year. And um, again, you know, I know that this is a status update because we don't have the funding for this, but I do really think that we need to give staff, you know, some guidelines. I think sending it to the planning commission probably isn't going to have it done because staff doesn't get paid to go to the, the planning commission unless it's a, um, you know, pay for play here and um, so I, I don't really think that's going to get it done but I, I, I do think we need to figure out how we can get some funding together you know mixed use has been defined internationally um, so it's not like you know I think there's a lack of political will to have mixed use defined here more than an in a, that it's somehow more difficult in Petaluma than anywhere else and I think that there are a lot of legal definition definitions used in uh, new urbanism and in you know throughout um, planning schools in this country and abroad that we can use here we don't need something new we just need to have the political will to actually do it rather than say something is mixed use when it clearly isn't like the Regency shopping center um, so you know that that seems to me to be the issue and if if regulations need to be changed in order to facilitate that that's that's a good way to go but the first thing to do is really to get the definition and then that will drive what regulations need to be changed in order to implement it mr. Harris sure uh, this is a huge discussion lengthy discussion I'm, I'm sure the Planning Commission can really weigh in on this especially um, with the ideas from the um, council member Barrett um, bring incorporate all those ideas from those other groups and have a full and lengthy discussion at that level and bring in all the stakeholders as was suggested by mr. Haley as well um, I think there's a lot to be discussed here and it's it's more lengthy than just tonight's meeting This is a, a it is a, a, a d interesting subject. I was going to say difficult, but it's an interesting subject. Um, I think the mixed use of the theater district uh, down there has been exceptional. Um, I, I questioned it when I was on staff and it was being built, but it's proven to be very successful. One of the, the aspects of mixed use, there are a variety of mixed uses, and it appears to me that within this community, Mixed use is, in many people's minds, not mixed use if there's not a residential component to it. If there's not someone living somewhere on the property, then it's not mixed use. Um, the Regency Center, uh, East Washington Place, where Target is located, had a residential component once upon a time. And, and when that I was on staff at the time when it was brought down the drawings to share and and uh, I thought that was a plan to fail having a residential units stuck between the freeway uh, the racetrack and the stockyard um, uh, there would be an interesting uh, 
seller's declaration for uh, that property. I'd, I'd, I didn't think that was going to work. There was a residential component for Regency uh, discussed when, or for uh, Deer Creek, excuse me, Deer Creek when uh, that was, uh, uh, came before council and, and it was, entailed a, a care facility for seniors, a 55-bed care facility, a residential unit uh, for that. And it, it, that, at the time, was argued that that would work uh, into mixed use. Uh, uh, I had, again, I don't know that that was the best use, and history has shown that what it, the development is what it is. So as staff goes forward with this topic, uh, back to planning or however, uh, the, the definitions of mixed use, the various components that go into mixed use, it's just not residential. My personal opinion, that it's just not have to have a residential component, and if it doesn't, then it's not mixed use. Uh, there are a number of uses that go into the description. So with that, um, any other comments from council? Staff comfortable with what feedback they've received? Okay, we're moving on then to number six, parking requirements. So in terms of parking, the um, city council's work plan really doesn't give a lot of specificity on what about the parking section. Um, so in your staff report, staff brought up a couple items that staff has found cumbersome or outdated to work with in the parking ordinance. Some of the um, use types, it appears, need updated or the, the parking requirements associated with them. For instance, there's um, one of the more industrial use type goes by employees or square footage or acreage. Um, those type of parking requirements can be really difficult to work with. Um, there's also a number of the use types and the parking requirements associated seem excessive. Petaluma, you continuously hear Petaluma's vision as a pedestrian friendly, multimodal community and then we have parking requirements that require a lot of parking whenever anything develops and we have minimal flexibility on the staff level to provide any flexibility with those requirements. Um, shopping centers is something we grappled with I know with Deer Creek in terms of um, we don't have a classification for a parking standard for shopping centers so we had to take every single use and what the requirement was and there was no kind of credit for when you go to a center like that, you often are going to more than one store. Um, so those are some of the things that staff called out as um, ideas for looking at a comprehensive update on the parking section of the ISO. The other item we brought up was the downtown parking assessment district, which has gotten um, a little more attention of late with some of the projects that have either come through or have been kind of percolating as potentials. Um, so the parking assessment district, there's no on-site parking requirements for those properties within those boundaries. And that includes when a property comes in and for instance, um, the Petaluma Hotel going to a market rate hotel use versus um, a, a residential use. What's the difference gonna be on parking? Where's that additional parking gonna go? when the um, Sleep City building came in and it was increasing the upper floors returning to office, the question came up of that additional parking that's a different type of parking requirement or demand 
um, and where was that parking going to go? So that may want to discuss that in policy direction for that existing assessment district and maybe options for increasing available parking um, with that. So overall staff recommends that future code revisions look comprehensively at the land use types, parking requirements to put them in line with current standards, um, look at applying maximum parking standards, not just minimum. Um, a lot of um, uses come in and they want to park for that one or two days of the year. So much of the year you have a lot more parking than is ever used. Um, and increasing some flexibility. There's no flexibility or very limited flexibility for things when you're located near transit stops or um, any kind of a, the um, alternative transportation options to reduce on-site parking requirements. So I guess staff is looking for any additional direction if there was some ideas that went behind that parking item being put on the work plan that staff is not aware of or hasn't discussed in this, we'd be looking for that direction. Mr. Healy. Um, thank you. Um, so I guess, I guess when I think about parking uh, in this community, I, I differentiate between the downtown core and everywhere else because the, the kind of issues you're talking about, maximum, minimum, coincident uses, um, people doing more than one thing on one trip, it has a different flavor in, in the outlying parts of town and the, um, the business parks and the, um, the shopping centers. But then the downtown core seems to have its own unique set of issues um, and, and, and probably more, more difficult issues, quite frankly. Um, so, I mean, I was around when, uh, when we got the uh, um, theater district uh, parking structure built. And um, back in those days, uh, there were thoughts that that would be the first of maybe four additional parking structures in addition to the Keller Street garage that were going to be built. Um, and I think that, that particular parking structure has been a great success, the way it's designed, the way it was thought out, um, and even being pedestrian friendly in terms of the lower level being, you know, having office uses. So um, I, I guess I would encourage you to proceed with the kinds of things in terms of the overall updating for the overall community and then just recognize that the downtown continues to have its unique challenges. And I, I think we are probably going to have to be looking at trying to create an additional parking structure in the downtown, especially as, as the area around the, um, the train station uh, hopefully starts to develop in conformance with the plans at the kind of density that we're talking about. Other comments? Ms. Barrett? You know, uh, I, I understand what you said about the, you know, it being cumbersome to have three different ways of looking at parking, but what, what were you recommending would be the, the chosen way to go? I, I don't have a specific yeah. recommendation. I think some of just, I was trying to identify some of the things that when an applicant comes in and says, what do I, what's my parking requirement and the things we kind of grapple with and we talk through with them and that's one of them that often stands out. And when someone's reoccupying a building, that one can be a hard one as well. Okay, because, you know, it seems, and, and Mr. Healy might be right about this because the downtown may have to be looked at differently than other places because in, in some places you have very few options, as you were saying. And then here you're almost saying you have too many options of how you're going to define it. 
and uh, it would seem to me that um, I don't know what the range is that that would give for any one project to do it by square feet or part of an acre or number of employees. Um, you know, what kind of range difference does that give you? I, I don't know. And so I don't know which one is more helpful. It may be that certain kinds of businesses, you know, would gravitate to one definition versus another. But in the downtown core, I, I do think um, funding another garage may be really, really next to impossible. Um, I don't know how that would happen, um, but that would be you know, I mean, it is something that we had hoped that there would be the four garages. Um, maybe the other thing we look at is parking permits and in the surrounding residential areas as businesses and as business use intensifies in the downtown area, the spill out into the uh, local neighborhoods will intensify. And so that might be something that we look at. Um, I know some cities in Southern California have a, you can't park overnight on the street without a permit, uh, whether you live there or not. So, you know, and then there's other street, other cities that actually just have permitted parking for residents. So, you know, there, there are different um, options that people have. I do, I do agree with your idea that you need to reduce the number of uh, spaces that you know, hopefully we won't have any more of these god-awful shopping centers, um, but um, that they get to have, because it is just a sea of parking and they really don't need that except for one or two days a year. Uh, so, so we do need to be able to um, count one parking place for multiple times and multiple uses um, the way we do and are going to do in the um, station area. And then, of course, the whole notion of anything around transit-oriented, I do think we need to relook at that kind of definition. That, that is a very good idea, and I think that that was also brought up in the station area plan. Um, I like the idea of looking, applying maximum parking standards um, in addition to minimum parking standards. I like that, you know, the looking at where one is the what you need and where the other is what you need. So I think, I think you have a lot of good ideas. Um, but I do think we need to um, address the, the downtown area, and, and I would include the, um, you know, perhaps the whole central Petaluma specific plan is in, in addition to that downtown area. You might have subsections like we do in the central uh, plan, but looking at parking in that area uh, as a whole. So thanks. Whenever we get funding for that. I, I think if you take that as general direction, it's going to answer my question because I was going to ask about the uh, the last paragraph of where you're allowing in chapter 11, where you're allowing minimal flexibility to reduce parking requirements on a project basis due to the proximity to transit facilities. So if you're taking in all of Central Pedal's specific plan, I think it would if you're incorporating all of that in the analysis, because my question was going to be, well, how far away from that area? But if you're incorporating the whole plan, then I think that'll that'll answer it when you when you come back of all the options that are laid out to us. So my question was probably answered there. For both stations. I'm going to open this to public comment. Item six, parking requirements. Anyone in the chamber want to speak to parking requirements? Have you filled out a speaker slip, ma'am? If you would, when you're done, I'd appreciate it, ma'am. If you'd give your name. Yes, uh, Taylor Metzler. Uh, I'm sorry, you have Taylor, to Taylor Metzler. Thank you. Um, I first just want to say I agree with what they were saying about maximum and minimum and all of that. I also want to speak to the issue of parking in downtown. 
Um, I'm an avid bike rider. I will bike everywhere that I go, as no matter what. But often that means that when I get to downtown or I get to wherever I want to go, I end up tying my bike to a tree or to a pole. I think that if you make biking more of an option to people, that that becomes more of something that they will do, and parking downtown becomes maybe less of an issue. So when you're thinking about increasing parking in downtown, also think about increasing the number of bike spaces and um, capability of biking, so bike lanes and so forth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any other speakers on this item? I'm going to close public comment on parking requirements. I'm in the downtown area, this is going to be real difficult as we go along. The, 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 the train depot area is, a, is a, uh, a large project waiting to happen, and how we accommodate parking with that will be interesting. Uh, I don't know that the, the, the idea of permits is uh, uh, something maybe to be looked at. Uh, there are other examples uh, in our neighboring communities. I, I found it interesting, as I understand it, the new Sutter Hospital is sharing parking with uh, Wells Fargo Center. That uh, they need parking during the daytime, and Wells Fargo Center needs it at night, and they're they're sharing that asphalt uh, use of space. So I think that's a neat deal. I don't know if there's another venue here where like circumstance might make that possible, and it may become necessary to consider uh, parking in outlying areas. Uh, to parking, and I'm just for. <coughs> Excuse me. Fairgrounds will go nuts when I say, you know, parking at the fairgrounds because there's asphalt there that's not being used right now. And then, or some other location and shuttling uh, people back into the downtown. There's a shuttle service on a regular basis that brings uh, uh, people back to the downtown. And an option because uh, space and then the value, the, the cost of the land will be going up and people wanting to develop buildings on the piece of dirt and not asphalt parking lot but we need to have some place to put these cars so uh, creativity is going to be I think a key any other comments from the council on the parking requirements are you good with this so far yeah I, I think it's a it's a large a large section of the code and as I think you can hear us say repeatedly tonight so many of these two overlap with other sections of the code. So um, really once you get down to all of these items, we're looking at a pretty comprehensive update of the ICO. With that, we're going to move on to number seven, the sign ordinance. And these last two are, are mostly just an update, trying to get give the council an update of everything that was on uh, their work plan and um, what, what is in process. Um, what isn't in process due to limited resources. Sign ordinance, um, the reconsideration of freeway oriented signs, the council recently directed staff to uh, reinitiate that effort. So staff is currently working on that. It's being, a draft is being reviewed by the planning commission tomorrow. Um, and then we would proceed to, to council after planning commission makes a decision. A recommendation rather um, you also have the recent adoption of the smart code included um, an, an over 
a, a, a redo of sign regulations to really look at sign regulations with a different approach, um, a lot more detail, um, a lot more um, specificity with design and um, size than I think the ISO currently does. So those are the two pieces of a sign code update that have happened or are happening. Um, and although a more comprehensive overhaul of Chapter 20 of the ISO is on the Council's two-year work plan. There hasn't been uh, resources to initiate that larger project to date. Mr. Weissmeyer. Mr. Kearney. Well, there is no money for it. Um, it's still something that is uh, somewhat bothersome uh, for myself. Uh, I don't live in the downtown area, and I uh, don't live near any shopping centers. Yeah, the increase in A-frame signs for businesses in my neighborhood has grown uh, at a ridiculous level, in my opinion. Uh, so uh, on my way to work, the frequency in which I see an A-frame sign advertising a business two, three miles away, um, they're popping up more and more, uh, it seems, every day. And it, I don't like it. Um, if, if I were a shop owner uh, and I owned, you know, I don't know, some kind of store in town, and I had an A-frame in front of my store saying, you know, I'm selling this in this store. Totally appropriate, in my opinion. But to advertise, you know, that I have a yogurt shop eight miles away from where the A-frame sign is, I, I just don't agree with. Uh, the other thing that I've seen increasingly is people with uh, trailers, with signs created on the trailer, advertising their, I don't know, uh, What's my favorite one? The it's it's uh, uh, animal waste uh, removal company, uh, and like they'll just park it on Eli, the corner of Eli and Caulfield, for you know a week at a time, and then move it to uh, Casa Grande and Eli or whatever. And it, you know, I understand people have their you know freedom of speech, but that's they're advertising their business and leaving their trailer there for you know extended periods of time. So, I, you know, I'd love to see us kind of incorporate uh, restrictions on that. I know, but I, again, I, I understand that we have limited resources and, uh, but I just, you know, I, I'm seeing the in increase in those activities throughout the city. Ms. Barrett and then Mr. Harris. Yeah, I would just like to reinforce what you just said. I think that that is something that might be brought up with the Planning Commission tomorrow night, these off-site signs and especially signs in residential areas, you know, that these little A-frames that have popped up uh, quite a bit. And that, that sounds actually more like enforcement than uh, I believe the current code um, would prohibit a sign located on a trailer and a definitely a sign an A-frame sign n not anywhere near the business. So that sounds like more enforcement than. But again, I, be I believe we have Joe. Right. You know, we have Correct. one guy, uh, you know, to in enforce it through for a city of 60,000. So again, I, it, it's not for a lack of trying. I think our staff are really trying to stay on top of it. But it, it you know, there's one of him in, you know, hundreds of businesses. Mr. Harris. I was just going to ask, tomorrow night's discussion, or maybe it's the next larger discussion, is that going to include the discussion of the people on the side of the road with their signs, or does that get to the freedom of speech issue or 
The only thing that's and, before the um, the commission entertaining is just I don't know if it's safe. <laughs> the only item before the commission tomorrow night is the um, the free, freeway oriented oh, okay. sign as part of a master sign program for shopping centers with Highway 101 frontage. Mr. Healy, do you have a? Well, yeah, and just in response to Mr. Kearney's comment, I'm looking at um, Unicode Section 1144-120. Parking commercial vehicles in residential districts is prohibited. Um, are, are these ones, these 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 billboards on wheels that you're talking about, are those in residential neighborhoods? Corner E-Line in Caulfield, I think, is considered residential. Yeah. So, uh, the, but again, I think it, a lot of it comes down to enforcement of it, you know. Um, right, and you know, stuff on the streets maybe isn't Joe's area; it's just the police department. And we have, I think, one CSO now. I know. So, I'm going to open this to public comment. Uh, number seven, the sign ordinance. Does anyone in the room want to speak to number seven, the sign ordinance? See, no one rise. We're going to close public comment and bring it back to council. Anything additional on this? I just myself um, in discussion on the freeway signs. Uh, I would hope that the Planning Commission and staff would look at consistency to say that we don't want freeway signs. We had a long discussion about this, about the, the Regency Center, East Washington Place, and then blending over into uh, Petaluma or. Um, Plaza North and Plaza South uh, signage on their buildings. But if we, we can go out on the freeway and starting to the south at the Sheridan and going down the freeway or north to, to Club One and the casino and Cattleman's Inn, there's signs facing the freeway all over the place. So I had some consistency and design factors. I think uh, we talked about tastefully designed signs at the time. I would be willing to look at that again. The A-frames on the sidewalks, I am blocks from the business, that's an issue that could or couldn't look at. I think more to the issue is these A-frames on some of the sidewalks, which are narrow already with those cement, cast cement planters that are out there, um, and then people uh, in handicap trying to get around some of these signs. Uh, it's, it is becoming... Uh, a whole bunch of them out there. I'm, I'm not trying to curtail business and people are trying to bring people into their stores and restaurants. I appreciate that, but there's the aesthetics of it and then also the issues of ADA and everything else on, on trying to get past these on what are narrow sidewalks within our community. So with that, is there any other comments of, from Council on the sign ordinance? And then we'll move on to the last item, eight, historic preservation. So uh, the city council's work plan called for an update of um, IZO chapter 15, the historic preservation chapter in the IZO, as well as updates to the historic district guidelines for all three of the adopted historic districts. Um, and there has not been resources to undertake this as soon as resources become available. There is a draft that was worked on by um, a, a subset of the Development Code Advisory Committee, um, but it hasn't been vetted by staff. It hasn't been discussed with the state. So as resources become available, we will initiate that. The, 
the discussion with the state is very important because one of the general plan policies was to um, get certified as a certified local government. So we want to make sure anything we do, we're meeting all those standards so that we keep that option open and we're adopting codes that are represent the latest and greatest in that field. Mr. Healy. Thank you for that, Heather. Could you just give us uh, a bit of a heads up of what, what the changes, substantive changes would be if, if that proceeds uh, that's in the draft? Um, I can talk a little bit about some of the requirements of certified local government. Certified local government, there's some requirements that you have um, a certain makeup of your historic board, um, that you have certain regulations in place in your ordinance, um, that you have a historic preservation element in your general plan. So in order to be considered for certified local government status, um, there are certain things that you have to make sure you have in your codes and policies. Um, obviously, we have a historic preservation element in our general plan. Um, some of it may be looking at the makeup of the Historic and Cultural Preservation Committee to meet state standards. One of the, the benefits of certified local government is once you're certified, you're open for grant funding. So, for instance, getting um, Chapter 15 adopted, getting certified as a certified local government then could open up grant funding to then use to go back and do, for instance, updating the, the guidelines or redoing s surveys. Um, you know, our downtown district, there's been a lot of changes since the last time that one was um, designated as a national register. It would be nice to relook at that. So I think there's a couple buildings that maybe have gone from non-contributing to contributing with some of the changes that have been made. So that would open up funding for us to maybe do some of the other things that are on the work plan or called for in the general plan. Thank you. Would that sort of funding help fund fire sprinkler retrofits in those historic buildings in the downtown? Um, I don't know. I, I thought it was more for um, surveys, context statements, um, but I'm not positive. Maintenance of know. our architectural heritage, I think, would be something that in the historic district on the registry, that would be something that would be of interest. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I can't answer that. Food for thought. So we don't have the staff to work on this right now. We've got a lot of irons in the fire. This is something staff wants to bring forward. Do you have a ballpark figure this year? Next year? Uh, obviously, before the two years is our goal to hit everything on your work plan. And the two-year uh, date uh, expires? Yeah, December or January, De December I'm 14th. Sorry. December 14th of, December of 2014. Okay. All right. Questions, comments on historical preservation? Uh, I think the staff did a great job. <laughs> we might want to call for public comment, though. And we can do that. Is there anyone I'd like to speak to number eight, historic preservation? See no one rise. After you have everything on this, we've had, uh, I think, a great discussion on a variety of subjects. And I appreciate staff's work on bringing this forward. It's no easy task, I know. and. <laughs> given your audience here, probably makes it no easier still. So I appreciate the effort that went into this. Any other comments from Council? 
I'll move to adjourn, Mr. 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 Vice Mayor. Oh, I'm sorry, um, Mr. Kerry. Danley. I just um, there, there's a there's a staff comment I think might be helpful, and, and maybe it's obvious to the council. Apologies if it is. Um, there, there's a there's a little bit of a subtext to I think some of the staff presentation, or it might be a subtext to some of the staff presentation on these latter sort of bigger, if you will, categories, not the ones that are um, more in a, in a housekeeping or legal compliance nature, but the ones that involve uh, bigger policy issues uh, in the gen in these in the zoning and also um, behind it the general plan, like the mixed use project discussion, like parking, like the sign um, regulation, and also historic preservation. Um, and that is that and there was some helpful staff level, level discussion that occurred in trying to um, get staff's arms around this this um, sort of far-ranging work plan issues for discussion tonight. And I think what we were seeing is that um, there are some some ways in which uh, the interim nature of the current zoning code becomes more and more apparent as we try to move forward um, and and some topic areas that it really is um, not so closely implementing the vision in the general plan and, and and I think these are some of the areas where that's true and where it also I, I think you're hearing it in different ways tonight some staff discussion suggesting that I think there's um, some emerging staff consensus that some of these topics are um, important enough in terms of fully implementing the general plan and also um, dispersed so throughout the zoning ordinance that they're not very susceptible of piecemeal addressing um, like the sign ordinance, like the um, like the um, mixed use, because it's really you know you heard Scott make some comments about how there's kind of a disconnect between the zoning ordinance and the general plan in terms of really um, implementing um, or facilitating um, mixed use in, in a versatile way. So. Um, I, I, and I don't know how obvious this was to the council, so that's why I mentioned it. It, it does seem, uh, it's certainly it's my view, um, and, and if, if staff if think I'm, I'm off base in terms of their view, please, please say so, but that some of those topics we need to look at a little bit more holistically, a little bit in the nature of the, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the subcommittee was looking at some of those issues when the, the um, zoning ordinance was new um, and still in process. The other thing is that, and this is some, something certainly that needs to be addressed and, and um, needs the leadership of the city manager on his return, but to the extent the council um, really wants to, to um, more closely align the zoning ordinance with the general plan in the way that the smart updated smart code now does, because I think that represents the most sort of modern and closely linked part of the zoning to the general plan. Um, obviously, that's going to take resources, and and um, in conjunction with the city manager, I think it may be possible to look at at some of these subject areas subject to council direction um, to to give them 
more of a holistic treatment that they probably need and look at resources between things like prioritizing time of in-house staff um, to uh, fee revenues that may be available to um, fund you know contract staff costs that kind of stuff so th there was a little bit that's I hope I haven't mischaracterized that uh, looks like I have characterized it correctly so I, I didn't want I would have felt bad if tonight's discussion happened and that weren't and that remained so subtle that it wasn't before the council as something that probably also needs to be part of our return discussion if we're really gonna um, not feel paralyzed by by limited resources but deploying them as wisely and effectively as we can to really really make some progress like I think the smart code does um, and other aspects of the code could also I don't think we address this thing it certainly wasn't our intent to be piecemeal about this we had a list of topics that we needed to discuss uh, staff made a presentation we gave feedback uh, some gave them some direction on where to go we're not setting policy tonight we're not making decisions tonight sure and when that comes back you know we'll go at it in more detail that's that's, that's great. what we're doing great. tonight. I think we did in accordance with what the agenda established and what we had st set out to do in the beginning. Oh, yes. There's no criticism in my comments of the discussion we had tonight or how I think that staff did a great job setting that out. The council was responsive and we had good discussion. Um, I was just trying to make sure that some of what we were trying to suggest in terms of how going forward we may need to really attack some of these topics. Um, I, I was trying to bring that out, so certainly no I criticism. I look forward to staff bringing those items back. We can have I, a motion. Can I follow up on that? Mr. Healy. Briefly. Um, so it, it seems to me, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the, the one place in the organization where we have some flexibility to um, address long-term issues that don't have revenue sources directly attached with them is really the advanced planning function, and he's sitting in the front row as opposed to the planning department, which is more um, tied to revenue generating projects. And I, I guess the question to some extent is, you know, what what's stacked up waiting to land in, in the advanced planning function and, and what's out there and when, when? That would certainly be part of that mix. I mean, you now have in-house legal resources and are further developing those, so that's another resource. There are also um, some fees related to, you know, um, that have revenues related to uh, planning document updates so there's a potential package of things that that you know may, maybe don't permit of attacking all of this fully holistically all at once but there's there's probably some potential there that we and, can and, certainly and, I, and I just close with one point which is that you know this is a struggle that I think a lot of organizations have but you can't let the um, the important stuff always get pushed aside because right. of the urgent stuff that's less important I think that's right. So we have a motion and need a second. And Mr. Harris second. So the motion to adjourn. All in favor? Aye. Aye. That carries. <laughs>